in this genre that we're talking about and what I've always discussed uh, and we'll always discuss on the show, we might do sci-fi other than Kryptonian versus Veltramites and things of that nature. Um, A peaceful death is usually something that eludes everyone. You have, you know, notable exceptions. You have uh, the most famous one, I think, at at this point being Meister Amon dying, you know, talking to his, his brother. Um, we all know the famous line. If you're a fan of the show or the books at all, egg, egg, I dreamed I was an old man and I was always cold. And then he died. Um, he lived to be over a hundred and lived a fairly, he could, he was a potential King. He was part of a dynasty. He lived a very full life and died. I think in a way that, that befit him, that he was, you know, he, had he not been, you know, dementia at that point, he would have been okay with it, you know? He would have, I, I imagine he would have been like, how very proper. And then he would have died. I mean, he's, he's, he was a Targaryen through and through. He was one of the good Targaryens through and through. But even in the world of Dragonlance, um, which is markedly less violent, you know, in a lot of ways than Westeros and uh, even uh, the world of the Deathgate cycle, you know, all that stuff, a peaceful death is remarkable. And in this week's uh, episode, we're going to discuss a, a very sad and, you know, but also somehow satisfying death of a major character that we've been building to. So strap in. It's going to be uh, and get your tissues ready uh, for Dragons of Spring Dawning Part 3. Last episode, months ago feels like, um, we were discussing Lorana and Flint and Tasselhoff and um, the aftermath of Sturm's death and, um, you know, uh, the success they had over, th- um, th- so they thought, over the dragon armies, but it turns out it was a clever ruse by uh, by Kitiara. And uh, remember that the... Bacaris, the the officer who was supposed to be traded back for Lorana, was going to try to rape her, and uh, Flint and Tasselhoff, especially Tasselhoff, you know, intervened and Tasselhoff stuck him with his little knife. I always like that. Um, yeah, one of the best lines was uh, Caraman always said that ro- ro- that knife wouldn't be anything better than slaying rabbits, so he used to call the the knife Rabbit Slayer. That was a pretty pretty on brand thing for Tasselhoff Burfoot. But also the bravery and the love for Lorana was too. We didn't discuss Tannis or the other companions at all. Remember last time we saw them, they were getting sucked down into the blood sea of Istar, you know, got into the maelstrom, um, had, you know, foiled Kitiara's plans to take Barum and do whatever they're going to do with Barum. Remember the one storyline I don't really care for, but um, it fits actually. Um, but now we, it's uh, the name of the chapter that starts with this is a peaceful interlude. And Tannis wakes up. Quote, 
Well, this is after he's awake, of course. Quote, all right, said Tannis, glaring at the man who sat so calmly in front of him. I want answers. You deliberately took us into the maelstrom. Why? Did you know this place was here? Where are we? Where are the others? Barum sat before Tannis in a wooden chair. It was ornately carved with figures of birds and animals in a style popular among the elves. In fact, it reminded Tannis strongly of Lorak's throne room in the doomed elven kingdom of Sylvanesti. The likeness did nothing to calm Tannis' spirits, and Barum flinched under the half-elf's angry stare. The hands that were too young for the middle-aged man's body, I never got that, plucked at his shabby trousers. He shifted his gaze to glance nervously around their strange surroundings. Um... We get into an argument here with Tannis trying to get it out of Barum and, you know, getting really upset with him. And, uh, you know, they don't, he, he doesn't know where they are. Um, he thinks they figures they should be dead and they should, but, uh, you know, this is fantasy. So they were able to live through a massive storm and a whirlpool into a, into a sea to at the, that is the remains of a doomed city at the bottom of the ocean. Did you ever, ever have an above ground pool when you were a kid? Yes. Did you make the, yes, of course you did. And then you tried to fight it like on the way back. Yeah. I mean, and then all the dirt was in the middle. So your mom just had to get the vacuum thing out or your dad, if you're in that kind of family (laughs) and sweep out the dirt from in the middle. Well, actually I never had one of those pools, but I spent plenty of time in those pools. Okay. We had one. I guess we, we were above the poverty line. Yeah. You quite, quite No, My my parent, my mom would just, not deal with the hassle one. It, oh, it was, for, it's always hassle with her. Such a hassle. Yeah, I know. She, she my ex wife made us put one back here, and I was like, This sucks. Yeah, you, you've never had one of these. This is not fun. We'll do it. We'll go in it twice, yeah. and it's going to suck. Right. And, and then, then you'll have dead frogs and stuff in it. Yeah. And we didn't, uh, we didn't level out the ground because we were st- stupid. We just put down a bunch of sand and threw a pool up, and it was all fucking jacket and yeah, and then, neat. And then it was just compl- a complete hassle. As soon as we uh, split up, I got the thing removed. <laughs> By removed, did you take a sledgehammer and smack the side no, of it? No, I hired spill? a drunk guy to come and. <laughs> to, but he did that. He constructed. He, he did it with a sledgehammer. Yeah, he, he did it for free to take the shit to the scrapyard. Neat. Um, we have the discussion, uh, of course, with. Um, they start talking to Barum about why he's afraid and all those things. And we, you know, again, the character is not my favorite. I mean, I. I, again, I I have talked to Margaret Weiss before on on Twitter. I really love her. You really bring that up a lot. Well, I know, but I'm saying that if she were to hear this, I don't wouldn't, wouldn't want her to go into it thinking I was talking shit about her writing. There are two things I can guarantee that she's not going to listen to this. We're going to die someday, and she's not going to hear this. Absolutely. Okay. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> but I'm you know, and also just covering. Maybe she would listen. I have no idea. Get a hold of her. On I Twitter. think if I sent her a link on Twitter, she would listen to it. She seems like that kind of person. Maybe she'd come here and um, fuck us both. I have no idea. She's like 80. <laughs> your your point? I know you're going to say yeah, something like that. I don't care. Um, but they are discussing the gem stuck in his chest. He doesn't know um, where it comes from. He's tried to rip it out. He can't do it. Um, and then, you know, it's Gold Moon, River Wind, uh, Tannis and Barum. The other two, Caraman uh, and Tika, are nowhere to be found. Uh, we'll, we'll catch up with them soon. Um there's another good description here of Tannis looking around where they are. Quote, once more, Tannis looked around their strange surroundings. They were in a room of an obviously ancient building lit with a soft, eerie light that seemed to come from the moss that covered the walls like tapestry. The furniture was as old as the building and in battered, shabby condition, though it must have been rich once. There were no windows. Nothing could be heard outside. They had no, how long, they had no idea how long they'd been here. Time had grown confused, broken only by eating some of the strange plants and sleeping fitfully. 
Tannis and Riverwind had explored the building, but could find no exit and no other signs of life. Tannis wondered, in fact, if some magical spell had not been laid over the whole thing, a spell designed to keep them inside. For every time they ventured forth, the narrow, dimly lit hallways that led them inexplicably back to this room. Sounds like some magic could play. They remembered little about what happened after the ship sank into the maelstrom. Tannis recalled hearing the wooden planks shattering. He remembered seeing the mast fall, the sails rip. He heard screams. He saw Cameron washed overboard by a gigantic wave. He remembered seeing Tika's red curls swirling in the water. Then she too was gone. There had been the dragon and Kitiara. The scratch of the dragon's talons remained on his arm. Then there was another wave. He remembered holding his breath until he knew he would die from the pain in his lungs. He remembered thinking death would be easy and welcome, easy if he fought to grab hold of a piece of wood. He remembered surfacing in the rushing water only to be sucked down again and knowing it was the end. And then he'd wake him into the strange place, his clothes wet with seawater, to find River One and Gold Moon and bear him there with him. Um, they have a, a discussion um, you know, about the Dark Queen, why she wants them, or Kitty R, you know, whatever. I mean, really, in, in, in all reality, if you really think about it, they're one and the same. Kitty R is a pretty awful person. Um, and uh, Barum doesn't know. He, he really doesn't. He's, I mean, you kind of have to feel for the guy after a while. He's literally immortal, running for something his entire existence for over 300 years. You know, he's, you know, 300 plus years old. I mean, that's old for, in this world, that's, kind of old middle age for an elf you know they can live to 500 plus you know um for a dwarf that'd be twice his span flint is about 100 and 150 maybe closing on 150 oddly enough though kinder and dwarves being related kinder not live uh very much longer than humans they only live they live to be they can live to be 100 i think but that's humans can live and often do live to be 100 i wouldn't expect it in this world where there's you know no medicine but you have magic i mean i take that back their world probably would be better to be sick in because they can just you know wave something over you and you're healed at least at this point there wasn't for a while um then they see uh they see a man in red robes standing you know in, in one of the portals in one of the doorways quote Tannis Goldmoon cried. The half-elf rose at the sound of her voice, his hand going reflexively to the sword that wasn't there. Dimly, he remembered struggling with it in the water, its weight dragging him down. Cursing himself for not setting Riverwind to guard the door, he could do nothing now but stare at the red-robed man who stood framed in its opening. Hello, the man said pleasantly, speaking common. Common is English, by the way, guys. Uh, the red robes brought Raceland's image back to Tannis with such force that the half elf's vision blurred. For a moment, he thought it was Raceland. Then he saw clearly the mage was older, much older, and his face was kind. I like that. You would never say that Raceland's face was kind. <laughs> Quite the opposite, indeed. Um, you know, they they try to now they try to track this red wizard. He just turns around, and leaves basically. So they're going to try to pursue him and see where he's, you know, maybe he can get some answers. Uh, Barum is like a child in this, like, don't leave me. And Tannis, you know, is like, oh, God, take this idiot with us. You know, we're not, we're not going anywhere without you. Um, you know, and it's just more of the same. Quote, stepping into the hallway, they looked around curiously. Rooms filled with the same ancient mismatched furniture as in the room open from the empty corridor. These rooms, too, were empty, but all with the strange glowing lights. Perhaps it was an inn. If so, they appeared to be its only customers and might have been its only customers for a hundred years. They made their way through broken corridors and vast pillared halls. There wasn't time to investigate their surroundings. Not while trying the red-robed man, who was proving remarkably quick and elusive. Twice they thought they had lost him, only to catch a glimpse of the red rose floating down a circular stairway beneath them or flitting through an adjacent hallway. Um, they split up at this point. 
trying to track the guy. They don't know where he's going. Um, then Tannis finds something very interesting. Uh, at first, of course, with this quote, he didn't find anything. Quote, he found nothing. The hallway led to a large room, eerily lit as was everything else in this strange place. Should he look at it or turn back? After hesitating a moment, Tannis decided to take a quick glance inside. The room was empty except for a huge round table. And on the table, he saw as he draw closer was a remarkable map. Tannis bent, quick, bent quickly over the map, hoping for a clue as to where and what this mysterious place was. The map was a miniature replica of the city. Protected by a dome of clear crystal was so exact in detail that Tannis had the strange feeling the city beneath the crystal was more real than the one where he stood. That's a very odd. I always found that to be a very odd passage. Too bad Taz and his... Taz isn't here, he thought to himself wistfully, picturing the kinder's delight. Yeah, you could not. I mean, imagine Tassoff seeing something like that, how enraptured he would be with a giant miniature map underneath a piece of crystal. He continues, quote, the buildings were constructed in the ancient style. Delicate spires rose in the crystal sky. Light sparkled off the white domes. Stone archways spanned garden boulevards. The streets were laid out like a great spider web leading directly in the heart of the city itself. Um... It's no secret, you know. I'm I'm going to let it formally say where we are soon, but you know, it's they don't call it the Blood Sea of nowhere. So, quote, bending over the glass, he stared at the miniature more closely. Around the center of the city stood great pavilions and columned palaces, domes made of glass created summer flowers amid the amid the winter snows. And the exact center of the city itself rose a building that seemed familiar to Tannis, though he knew he had never seen been in the city in his life. Still, he recognized it, even even as he studied it, searching his memory, the hair prickled on the back of his neck. It seemed to be a temple to the gods. It was the most beautiful structure he'd ever seen, more beautiful than the towers of the sun and the stars in the Elven Kingdom. That's a strong statement. Remember, we've talked about how beautiful they are. Um, seven towers rose to the heavens and was praising the gods for their creation. The center tower soared in the skies far above the rest as if it did not praise the gods, but rivaled them. Confused memories of his elven teachers came back to him, telling him of the cataclysm, stories of the king priest. Um, he draws back from it. He's, you know, shocked. And then um, Barum's getting ready to leave the, uh, he's trying to leave this room. And, um, Tannis glanced above the doorway into the into the map room. Welcome, O noble visitor, to our beautiful city. Welcome to the city, beloved of the gods. Welcome, honored guest to Istar. They are in the uh, they're in the sunken city of Istar. The, the remains of the city that was pummeled by meteorites um, for the arrogance of the king priest, and probably I think also if I'm reading it right, something th- similar things that happened in Talitus around the same time. I think there was a great empire there too. I think they had to do that because you couldn't have an entire continent pummeled. I mean, I guess you could, especially dealt a massive stroke as opposed to the small ones that hit Ancelon. We've talked about Talitus before the giant lake of fire in the center of it and how that was just one giant comet hit it should have destroyed the planet in all honesty you know something that big should just shatter the whole planet but you know uh, there was the empire of old Aram, which has turned out to be an evil empire in and of itself i think maybe even worse than istar um you know i wish there were more books written in Talitus. we could discuss this we, we might do the Talitus trilogy later on um i know i always talk about Talitus. it's I could do an entire show of, of course, as I've said before on the uh, different awesome places there. But um, after that, we come into a dreaming caraman who's talking about, he's 
dreaming about his uh, Raceland's test in the Tower of Higher Sorcery. It's one of the where it broke Raceland's health, where he, you know, where Caraman had to watch Raceland kill him. Um, I'm not going to go into the, you know, all the details of it. Uh, Parcelian, Parcelian, I guess is his name, is the head of the Order of White, White Robes, and he is. I think the architect behind to teach race one some, some humility because he was going to be dangerous. They knew how powerful he was going to be. And they also, I think had an inkling then that Fist and Nantalus was, had taken an, an interest interest in him. They didn't know who it was not necessarily, but they, you know, he was doing things that were beyond his years and beyond his skill level in this test. I always thought that kind of cheapened race on some, because I really think, think he's an awesome character and he's super powerful. And in the next trilogy in this uh, in this world, uh, the Dragonlance Legend series, he really proves that. I mean, we've discussed this, you know, fight he had between him and Fist and Dantalus, and he, you know, it's no secret uh, he won. You know, Fist and Dantalus is a great name. It is. I, I just they sometimes the fantasy people can really come up with something good. You know, George R. R. Martin it alludes to punching someone's teeth out. Yeah, well, and it's just very mystically. You know what I mean? It's like very. I don't know how to explain it. You know, it's just very fantasy esque. You know, um, they they're like I said, this book is filled with tropes. The entire world is filled with tropes. You know, there is nothing originally original here uh, in its inception. Now, in its details, there are things that are terribly original that make it set it apart and make it a great fantasy world. The Elven Kingdoms, the details they talk about that are awesome. You know, you have the the Knights of Salamnia, which are, you know, just an ostensive, not ostensibly, but, you know, on their surface, just another armed order, but really have a really great history and, you know, a very detailed, um, you know, I think, I don't know if it's me or... Uh, but a very detailed uh, structure and, you know... It, Weiss and Hickman, of course, had a massive hand in this, and so did Zeb Cook. I'm pretty sure Zeb Cook was involved in this. Uh, I don't know if Gary Gygax was still there, who was like the guy who created Dragonlance. I mean, who created Dungeons & Dragons. I imagine he was. That point is in the early 1980s. So, I mean, this book was written in 19, I think, probably 86. You know, as we talked about, the first book was written in 84. So... um, you know, all these people came together and they were fantasy people. And we all, we were all those kids, you know, where we wanted to write our own world, but, but I give them so much respect for actually doing it. Um, and but as I'm saying, it is just Tolkien taken and putting in another map and all those things. The other continents, as I've discussed before, a little bit different. They're wildly original. Um, but Ancelon is just a, you know, a regurg- not a, a recycled fantasy world that on its surface is not so complex, but when you really dig into it, it's really good. You know, it's a solid foundations in this world. Um, I don't even remember my point <laughs> with this. Um, but as we were um, talking about, um, oh, it's the, the name that got us on that, Fist and Handless. <laughs> but Parsalian, who is, uh, as I said, the head of the the head of the orders of high sorcery and the head of the orders of the white robes, white robe magicians and and magicians and wizards in this are a lot like uh, Star Wars. the The black robes, who would be the dark side, ascend to power much more, much quick, much more quickly. I mean they they can get really powerful really fast because they there is no holds barred. They will study anything. They will do anything to get where they are. By their nature, they're that way. The, the white robes take a lot longer, but once they finally achieve that level of power, they are far more powerful, you know, because it's years of discipline study 
and things like that. And hardly any white robe lives to see that because it's the path is so long. Parsalian is old, but he is a match and more for Justinian, who is the or Justarius, I think, who is the head of the red robes, and Ladonna, who is the head of the black robes, who oddly enough is his lover. I mean, the the the, the magic order, especially the, the the orders of magic in in Korean, are so odd in the fact that they will kill each other in the outside world, sometimes on sight. But it's not it's it's a it's not personal, you know. It is it is something they're supposed supposed to do. So in in the towers, though, you know, the two remaining, well, the one remaining tower at this point, I think, um, Wayrath, they are. I, I read a description that was in the that was in the uh, Dragonlance source book, and it said two wizards who would happily kill each other, you know, on, on the outside world will put that completely aside and engage in a discussion about spell components or this new spell they've learned or something like that. And in a very animated, friendly discussion, it's very something of the long lines of uh, one of the best things I've ever seen is a uh, drawn from a lot of sources here is on Star Trek, the next generation where the Klingons would go out and fight off planet. They'd be in their ships and kill each other and board each other and do all awful things to each other. But on the Klingon homeworld, that is forbidden. So you come in there and you're drinking and laughing with men who you were trying to kill 20 minutes before. I think that's an awesome thing. It isn't personal. It's just their culture. It's just like fighters. After yes, absolutely. Over, they hug. And yeah, right. They're like, man, you really got me with that one. You need to teach me that. <laughs> right. Or samurai. <laughs> yeah. You know, who would kill each other in the battlefield, but in a sense, love each other. They respect each other. You know, they have this utmost deep seated respect for each other. But anyway, um, you know, he's in a dis- he's in an argument about Karaman's arguing with him like you're making him do this and all this stuff, and he loves his magic. And they're like, well, he loves it, yes, but not in the way he. And Parsalian made good. I didn't highlight any of this because you know, uh, here's a little bit that I highlighted, but I thought me discussing it and and you know, as opposed to reading is a little bit better. I'm trying not to read so many passages as opposed to just doing the Dan Carlin trying to discuss it and then use a quote to back something up but parsalian is like makes a, the comparison he's like you're a warrior he's like you fight with your companions how would it be if you weren't skilled with that sword you're a big strong guy if you swing that sword around you're gonna hurt somebody he's like you so you had to learn how to do that your brother needs to learn that as well and he needs to learn humility and then they said but in this in this process to try to teach humility they saw dangerous things about him already and um and Karaman didn't want to believe it. So Parsalian uses an illusion to show him, which, of course, Raceland is always also seeing himself. Uh, after Raceland was hurt in the test, a illusionary, illusory Karaman comes to pick him up. Quote, but just as they came near the door that led out of the tower, a wraith appeared before them. Another test, Karaman thought grimly. Well, this one will be one test Raceland's won't. Raceland won't have to handle. Gently laying his brother down, the warrior turned to meet his final challenge. What happened then made no sense. The watching Karaman blinked in astonishment. He saw himself cast a magic spell. Dropping his sword, he held strange objects in his hands and began to speak words he didn't understand. Lightning won't shot from his hands. The wraith vanished in a shriek. This, of course, this is sibling rivalry, especially among these two. Karaman has always been bigger and stronger, handsome women like him. You know, everybody likes him. He's, he's a great guy. You know, he, he'd be the big lug that everybody loved and never throws his weight around, but couldn't really back you up in a fight. You wouldn't want to mess with him, but he just, 
you have to really push him to get him to do that. You know what I mean? Um, nobody loves Raceland because he's skinny and suspicious and all these things. Um, you know, it's a sad thing, but people don't like people who are weak sometimes just because their weakness makes them think about their own weakness, I suppose. Um, you can imagine Raceland seeing this, you know, what, what it does to him. And we have a, um, a, a true examination and, and uh, you know, a, a demonstration of this, I guess you would say. Um, he saw Raceland rise slowly. How did you do that, Raceland asked, propping himself up against the wall. Caraman didn't know. How could he do something that took his brother years of study? The warrior saw himself rattling off a glib explanation. Remember, this is Caram just watching. He's not actually doing this. Caraman also saw the look of pain and anguish on his brother's face. No race on the real Caraman cried. It's a trick, a trick of the old man's. I can't do that. I'd never steal your magic from you. Never. Stole his magic from him. You know, imagine your brother. You try, you, you work on a sport like crazy and love it and try to be good at it. And bust your ass at it, you know. Let alone a, a stranger who might, a stranger or a friend, where you might feel that. Imagine your own brother just taking that from you, being like, "I don't even have to try, and I'm doing this better than you can." That would be the most awful thing. Imagine this. This now among twins, especially twins like this, where one brother got all the brawn and good looks and all that stuff, and the other brother got nothing. Um, of course, it's going to drive racing crazy, and it does. But the, we continue, quote, but the image caraman swaggering and brash went over to rescue his little brother to save him from himself. Raising his hands, Raceland held them out toward his brother, but not to embrace him. No, the young maid, sick and injured and totally consumed with jealousy, began to speak the words of the one spell, the last spell he had strength to cast. Flames flared from Raceland's hands. The magical fire billowed forth and engulfed his brother. Caraman watched in horror, too stunned to speak. As his own image was consumed in fire. He watched as his brother collapsed onto the cold stone floor. Um... That'd be an awful thing you know, to have to watch that, especially you love your brother. Caraman does love his brother. Um, it's a very codependent. Well, I guess you'd call it codependent type. I don't know if you can call it codependent between brothers. I mean, I thought that would just be for a relationship, you know, that you have with a woman or something like that. But um, Caraman has his own selfish motivations in that relationship, too. It makes him feel uh, big and strong, take care of his sickly little weak brother. Um, even though there is a lot of genuine love in it, there is other feelings wrapped up in it. And Raceland is astute enough to know that they actually have discussions about to that effect later on, you know, Caraman has to get to the, you know, once his brother's gone, you know, it's not spoiling to say Caraman becomes an alcoholic, like a, a very severe one gains a ton of weight. Um, you know, we'll get into that later. I don't, I'm not going to do legends right after this. Cause I thought we could do something different. Um, but it's, as I said, you know, it could be a very complex relationship between the two. Um, Caraman then wakes up and he's not recovered at all from his ordeal in the blood sea. Um, he's laying there with Tika. They're, they're laying there in another room in this, uh, in this underwater, uh, ruins of Ishtar and she's trying to wake him up, but then he just, he, go, he tries to go right back to sleep. He's just depression napping at this point. Um, we've all had a good depression nap. Sometimes they're quite pleasant <laughs> when, when all you when you don't want to face anything. Uh, but then when he goes falls asleep, he remembers the uh, what happened to get them here. Quote. 
And now he was falling, falling to a horrible red darkness. Skeletal fingers clutched at him. Iowa's heads whirled past him, their mouths gaping in silent cries. He drew a breath, then sank into blood. Struggling, smothering, he finally fought his way back to the surface and gasped for air once more. Raceland, but no, he's gone. His friends. Tannis, gone too. He saw him swept away. The ship, gone. Cracked in half. Sailors cut apart, their blood mingling with the blood red sea. Where are all the sharks in this, I wonder? You know sharks would have to be trolling in there to to get a, a good meal. Tika, she was near him. He pulled her close. She was gasping for air, but he could not hold on to her. The swirling water tore her from his arms and swept him under. This time he could not find the surface. His lungs were on fire, bursting. Death, rest, sweet, warm. But always those hands dragging him back to the gruesome surface, making him breathe the burning air. No, let me go. And then other hands rising up from the blood-red water, firm hands. They took him down from the surface. He fell down, down into merciful darkness. Whispered words of magic soothed him. He breathed, breathed water, and his eyes closed. The water was warm and comforting. He was a child once more. But not complete. His twin was missing. No, waking from waking was agony. Let him float in that dark dream forever, better than the sharp, bitter pain. This is excellent writing at this point, too. Um, we've discussed before that there were flashes of their... Uh, eventual genius as writers and it was as i said a, a, a steep curve they you know they were brilliant quickly and this is just a, a a demonstration of that continues quote but the hands tugged at him the voice called to him caraman i need you tika um then apparently uh we were cut to the the wizard the red red wizard is standing in the room and tika's asking what's happening with him I, I, there's some you know a part there that they just kind of they assume that you know that you know they've discussed this um and tika asks him what's wrong with him he won't wake up is he hurt and the wizard says no not physically but mentally he's crushed by something that happened and then um and, you know, the guy asks, who's this race he talks about? He's like, this is his twin brother. Um, and then he asked if he died, and he said, no, he betrayed him. Um, and then the the man tells you one of the reasons he lives down here. Quote, I see the man nodded solemnly. It happens up there, and you wonder why I choose to live down here. Quote, but Tika, you know, doesn't want just to hear that glib explanation. Quote, you saved his life, Tika said, and I don't know you, your name. Zebula, the man answered, another great name, smiling, and I didn't save his life. He came back for love of you. Tika lowered her head. Her red curls hit her face. I hope so, she whispered. I love him so much. I would die myself if I, if I would save him, if it would save him. Now that she was certain Caraman would be all right, Tika focused her attention on this strange man. She saw he's middle-aged, clean-shaven, his eyes as wide and frank as his smile. Human, he was dressed in red robes. Pouches dangled from his belt. You're a magic user, Ted, Tika said suddenly, like like, like Raceland. Ah, that explains it, Zebula smiled. Seeing me in his semi-conscious state made this young man think of his brother. But what are you doing here? Tika glanced around at her strange surroundings, seeking them for the first, seeing them for the first time. She had seen them, of course, when the man brought her here, but she hadn't noticed them in her worry. Now she realized she was in a chamber of a ruined, crumbling building. The air was warm and stifling. Plants grew lushly in the moist air. 
There was some furniture, but it was ancient and ruined as a room in which it was haphazardly placed. Caraman lay on a three-legged bed, the fourth corner being held up by a stack of old, moss-covered books. Thin rivulets of water, like small glistening snakes, trickled down a stone wall that gleamed with moisture. Everything gleamed with moisture, in fact, reflecting the pale, eerie green light that glowed from the moss growing on the wall. The moss was everywhere, of every different color and variety. Deep green, golden yellow, coral red. It climbed the walls and crawled across the dome ceiling. Um... Tiga asks where they are. Um, she asks, what am I doing here and where is here? And the um, the guy's very polite. Zebula is a, a very nice guy at times. He gets annoyed with questions. Um, I think that I <laughs> would have liked to have been him. Just He lives here because he hates the service world. Too many wars, too much racket, basically. I'm like that much myself i live in my house you know i am in my house most of the time because i the outside world it doesn't frighten me but it just annoys me at some, at some points i mean I, I you know and i break my own rules by watching the news and wrapping myself in, in all the awful things but when i can actually force myself not to watch all those things i'm much happier you know i can understand him being especially a world like Korean where you have all these awful things happening war. He's aware of all these things, but he chose to live here. And he also chose to live here for love because she says, um, you know, of course she asks what she's doing here. And, and, uh, he informs her that the sea elves, what are you doing? Here? <laughs> It'd be awesome. If it was, uh, the Californians doing this whole, if they did a play about this whole thing, it'd be the best thing. It was ever. just all <laughs> the draconians or they just have like, snout so and they still talk like the california yeah. um they talk about their routes <laughs> I, can't, I can't really you take the insulin room you take the insulin you take the solace highway um and he's informed that they were saved by sea elves now we've discussed all the myriad kinds of elves on this planet you have you know the quality the silver nasty which were at, po- at one point one race which is split um, you have um, the Darganest, I mean, the the Kaganesti, which are like the wild elves. You have the Holder folk, which we haven't even discussed yet, that are that are in this continent too, but they're they're more numerous and talentless. They're like fairies, you know. They are like the old style of elves where they seemingly live forever. And you know, I think that their their magic, there's so much more magic because they haven't stepped from their you know, they're enchanted forests and stuff like that. And they, you know, they dress in leaves or the more classic example of what people think what an elf would be. You know, the elves in this world, as we discussed before, are essentially pointy eared humans that live a long time. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry to say it, but it's, it's just the truth. Um, I they don't even make toys. I, I, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean I like them any less. Um, I still love, uh, but here we have truly magical race. I don't know if they're the Dimmer Nasty or the Darganesti because that's as the Silver Nasty and, and Quail Nasty are, a part of two different races. The sea elves have those two different races too, that were once related. They live in underwater. They were, I think they were created by the passage of the Grayson of Gargath. We've talked about it before where the minotaurs were created during that. The kinder and El, the kinder and gnome, well, the kinder and dwarves were created during with the Greystone. this, this massive, this object of incredible magical power, which we find out in the last Chronicles book, by the way, what that actually is. And it's fucking awesome. But anyway, um, 
they save them because the sea elves are like other elves. They value life and they, you know, they don't want to see anybody die. So they saved them, brought them to this place. The only, only place they knew to take them. So, um, and they, they have a discussion about the Tika and Zebulun. Quote, why did they save our lives then? She asked. Do you know any la- elves, land elves? Zebula asked. Yes, Tika answered softly, thinking of Lorana. Then you know that to all elves, life is sacred. I understand, Tika nodded. And like the land elves, they renounce the world rather than help it. It's a pretty cutting thing to say right there. They are doing what they can to help. Zebula rebuked her severely. Do not criticize what you do not understand, young woman. Um, then they get into discussion about who's here and Zebulon saying, well, there's always others down here. You know, uh, there's lots of places to stay. He's basically trying to convince them to stay that this place is peaceful. And why don't they just stay here and just forget about the troubles on the, on the surface world? Obviously it's causing them pain. And you know, this young man is in a bed who can't stop sleeping because his brother was such a prick that he betrayed him. And you know, it's broken his psyche. And he's like, why don't you just stay here? Um, and Tika, I think, is kind of swayed by it a little bit. Um, and she asks, you know, there's got to be a way out of here. And Zebula answers, quote, they all ask me that, Zebula said with a touch of impatience. And frankly, I agree. There must be some way out. People seem to find it on occasion. Then there are those who simply decide that, like me, they don't want to leave. I have several old friends who have who have been around here for years. But see for yourself. Look around. Just be careful you stay in the parts of the ruins we've arranged. Um and he tries to make his case again. Quote, I live here. The more there's some word for surfacers. I think it's a elvish word that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. I live here. The more elvish word like you irritate me. Always in a hurry. Never satisfied to stay in one place. You and your young man would be much happier down here in this world than up there in that one. But no, you'll kill yourselves trying to find your way back. And what do you face up there? Betrayal. He glanced at Car- back, back at Carmen, as I said before. Uh, there is a war up there, Tika cried passionately. People are suffering. Don't you care about that? People are always suffering up there, Zebula said, and nothing I can do about it. No, I don't care. After all, where does caring get you? Where did it get him? With an angry gesture at Karaman, Zebula turned and left, slamming the ramshackle door behind him. Um, Karaman wakes up at that point, and him and Tika have a discussion. Um he and you know these two are in love i've always loved you know this part of the story i didn't like it at first it just seemed to be a puppy love kind of thing but then in the in the legend series especially you see how deep that love goes and how raceland almost destroyed it without even being there you know it's he's always that ghost between them tika and Caraman, you know in the legend series as i said just a second ago we really get into that and you know, it's a it's a heart wrenching thing, but it's also very it's one of those uh, warm warm ends of a book of a, of a series I've ever read, and it actually makes me cry every time I read it because it's very sweet. But um, and then they're just laying in the bed and they're cuddling, and uh, I think the the wizard's words started to work on her a little bit because she knows what's up there. Quote. Do you know, Caraman, she said softly, he's right in a way. We could be happy here. Do you realize this is the first time we've ever been we've ever been alone? I mean, really and truly alone together. And it's so still and peaceful and beautiful in a way. The glowing light from the moss is so soft and eerie, not harsh and glaring like sunlight. And listen to the water murmuring. It's singing to us. And then there's old, old furniture in this funny bed. And basically, 
you know, she they haven't been together. Caraman, as we said before, is he's like a pleasant Robert Baratheon. He's not he's not uh, afraid of swinging it around some. Um, swinging water around <clears throat> his pud. <laughs> Um, but they haven't been together because in a very sweet way, he's, he, she's not all those other women. He really loves her and I'm really kind of always has. So he didn't want to use her like he's used other women, you know? Um, and they have a discussion about, you know, she basically tells him, well, Raceland's gone now. You can make your own life. Um, why do you always have to, you know, why is he always in the equation? Basically. And he has an answer, quote, Raceland's still a part of me. He always will be, just as I'll always be a part of him. Can you understand? No, she couldn't, but she nodded anyway, her head drooping. Smiling, Caraman drew a quivering breath. Then he put his hand beneath her chin and raised her head. Her eyes were beautiful, he thought, green with flecks of brown. They shimmered now with tears. Her skin was tanned from living outdoors, more freckled than ever. Those freckles embarrassed her. Tigger would have given seven years of her life for every freckle. For creamy skin like Lorana's, I mean. But Carolyn loved every freckle. He loved the crisp, curling red hair that clung to his hands. Tika saw the love in his eyes. She caught her breath. He drew her near. His heart beating faster, he whispered, I'll give you what I can of myself, Tika, if you'll settle for that. I wish for your sake it was more. I love you was all she said, clasping around the neck. He wanted to begin... He wanted to be certain she understood. Tika, he began. Hush, Carolyn. I mean, it's, you know, the the implication there. They're getting ready to have sex. (laughs) Um... Then we have a an introduction of uh, of a sea elf. Um, they Tannis, Barum, Raceland. I mean, uh, Riverwind and, and Goldmoon fall Zebula to this other room. Quote, after running down about 20 steps, they came to a broad landing, decorated with life-size statues of silver and gold. From here, the stairs continued down, leading to another landing, leading to more steps, and so on until they were all exhausted and breathless. Still, the red lobes fluttered ahead of them. Suddenly, Tannis noticed a change in the air. It was becoming more humid. The smell of the sea was strong. Listening, he could hear the faint sounds of water lapping against stone. He felt Riverwind touch his arm, pulling him back into the shadows. They were near the bottom of the steps. The red-robed man was in front of them, standing at the very bottom, peering into a pool of dark water that stretched out before him into a vast, shadowy cavern. The red-robed man knelt by the side of the water, and then Tannis was aware of another figure, this one in the water. He could see hair shining in the torchlight and had a faint greenish cast. Two slender white arms rested on the stone steps the rest of the figure was submerged the figure's head lay cradled on on its arms in a state of complete relaxation the red robe man reached out a hand and gently touched the figure in the water the figure raised its head i've been waiting the woman said sounding the woman's voice said sounding reproachful tennis gasped the woman spoke elven now we could see her face large luminous eyes pointed at pointed ears delicate features a sea elf um uh, of course, all the elves will be aware of their kin. You know, they're, they probably even communicate with each other in some magical way. You know, uh, even though the elven world, they fought amongst themselves a lot. They are still united as a race in, in many ways. And I think that they probably would help each other, um, at least in a small fashion every now and then. They can all communicate with you. I think there's a common, a common elf language as there are different branches of that language tree but i think all elves can speak like the basically the elven version of common i I would i would consider it um you know i've read about a lot about these these 
sea elves. You have the shoal elves who live in shallow water, and then you have the deep elves that live out in the deep parts of the ocean with, you know, sea monsters. And I can't even imagine, you know, our world has sea monsters. I can't even imagine the thing that swim around in that place. <laughs> I, I watched part one of that Wells documentary last night on yeah. Disney. Dude. Yeah. it's it, The first one's about orcas, and they're just incredible. Yeah, they are. I mean, the, and the sea elves actually are friends with dolphins and speak with them and 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 killer whales in the north part and well in the, in the colder parts i think crin set up a little bit different the south is actually cold so i think they're a little bit farther south you know the the continent as opposed to you know it's 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 sometimes the descriptions they make of crin are not satisfactory you're like i don't understand what you're trying to show me here is the planet bigger than ours is it smaller you know apparently it's bigger because there's all these giant is it inside of ours (laughs) no it's the hollow earth theory oh well yeah there's actually which was confirmed in kong versus godzilla oh yeah okay that's quite the confirmation (laughs) Um, (laughs) god um there actually is a a hollow like planet Dungeons and Dragons uh, campaign, ha- uh, Hollow World is what it's called, and it's you know it's it was cool. It had cool ideas. Some of these, you know, again TSR at one point was cranking out worlds just left and right, and they were just teleservice representatives, huh? Teleservice representatives. Yeah, that's what. God, the the company that became Wizards of the Coast that now owns all those things, and I would be upset if the Wizards of the Coast didn't keep a concrete record of those things that all those things that were created they are some of them towering works of imagination you know they're of course they're based on root fantasy as we discussed before but some of them are very original um you have the ones that aren't so original gray hawk being one of those it's just a basically the basic dungeons and dragons world Dragonlance is very original in a lot of ways and it has so many great parts about it uh forgotten realms is it's cool, but man, it's so big, and they try to put so much stuff in it. We'll get into Forgotten Realms. That's where Dritstor and the uh, the Dark Elf Ranger is from, you know, and all these. Um, and then the the best thing they did though was this thing called Spelljammer, where they had they people in ships, magical ships, would go back and forth between these worlds, like they would, you know, it was a cool idea. Um, but then you get into the intersection of fantasy and science fiction sometimes it's it's rough you know like well you know these ships are magical you know they have to have some kind of technology you know not a lot of uh even a lot of skilled people have a trouble making that connection i think the best example of the of the best intersection i've heard of that is uh breath of the wild the legend of zelda game because the magic that the that the for lack of a better word, elves use in that is very similar to technology, but it's magic. Like they have these machines that are run by magic, but they're technology. It's really cool. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that game played or, you know, it's, it's so much fun. And I thought, I always thought that was the best example of that. Oh, well, leaving out, uh, Tad Williams, memory, star and thorn were the Sithy talk about, crossing a giant a great ocean and giant ships they're spaceships i mean and i think we're getting ready to reveal that and i think he's going to do it with just the right touch where it still is fantasy but it gets into the science fiction realm just a little spring just enough you know spring. right it's no just like salt bay <laughs> you sprinkle <laughs> it on there toss little bang in there little bam <laughs> um tannis and them um 
now come to talk to Zebula and this uh, sea elf. Um, and they get into an argument. Um, the sea elf actually is going to swim away. And Tannis tells her, you know, not to. Um, not He's like, I'm not going to hurt anybody. You know, where are you going? And uh, he asked where the where Tegan and Karaman are. Um, quote, the man hesitated after Tannis asked him, of course. Tannis went on hurriedly, losing coherence in his efforts to keep hold of this man who might be able to help them. I saw the woman here with you. I heard her speak. I know who she is. A sea elf, isn't she? You are right. I am half elven, but I was, I was raised among the elves, and I've heard their legends. I thought that's all they were, legends. I found that highly unlikely. But then I thought dragons were legends, too. There is a war being fought in the world above, and you're right. There always seems to be a war being fought somewhere. This won't stay up. This war won't stay up above. If the Queen of Darkness conquers, you can be certain she'll find out the sea elves are down here. I don't know if there are dragons below the ocean. There are sea dragons, elf, half elf said a voice, and the elven woman reappeared in the water once more. Moving with a flash of silver and green, she glided through the dark sea until she reached the stone steps. Then, resting her arms on them, she gazed up at him with brilliant green eyes, and we heard rumors of their return. We did not believe them, though. We, we did not know the dragons had awakened. Whose fault was that? You know, they get into a a discussion of that. Um, this is more, you know, exposition about what they're discussing. And, you know, it's really not that important in the, in the grand scheme of things. They're just trying to build to the rest of the story. Um, and, you know, the, she, the CF agreed with Zebula for quite a while. Like, you know, why would you go back there? And I don't think I want to take you back there and all these things. Um, and then we get a, Zebia leads them back looking for Tika and Karaman. Um, and he actually tells the story we all know of Estar, who's, uh, quote, you see, he explained, when the gods hurled the fiery mountain onto Kryn, it struck Estar, forming a giant crater in the land. The seawater rushed in to fill up the void, creating what came to be known as the Blood Sea. Many of the buildings in Estar were destroyed, but some survived and here and there retained small pockets of air. That is extremely unscientific. The sea elves discovered this was an excellent place to bring mariners they rescued from capsized ships. Most of them soon feel quite at home. The maid spoke with a hint of pride, which Goldmoon found amusing, though she kindly did not allow her amusement to show. It was a pride of ownership, as if the ruins belonged to Zebula, and he had arranged to display them for the public's enjoyment. But you, you are human. You're not a sea elf. How did you come to live here? Goldmoon asked. The magic user smiled, his eyes looking back across the ears. I was young and greedy, he said softly. Always in hopes of finding a quick way to make my fortune. My magic arts took me down into the depths of the ocean, searching for the lost wealth of Istar. I found riches all right, but not gold or silver. One evening I saw Apoletta swimming among the sea forests. I saw her before she saw me, before she could change her shape. I fell in love with her, and I long worked to make her mine. She could not love, live up above, and after I existed so long in the peace and tranquility, tranquil beauty down here, I knew I no longer had a life in the world above either. But I enjoy talking to you and your kind occasionally, so I wander among the ruins now and then to see who, have, who the elves have brought in. Um, he, and uh, she asked where the the temple of the king priest is and apparently there's a giant like hole like you know underwater hole in there and the sea elves won't go near it there's probably pretty awful things down there you know um and he explains quote you ask where the temple stands it stands no longer in the place where the king priest stood shouting his arrogant demands to the gods there is a dark pit although it is filled with seawater nothing lives within it none know its depth for the seals will not venture near it i have looked into its dark still waters as long as i could bear the terror and i do not believe there is into its darkness 
it is as deep as the heart of evil itself. And then Zebul asked her an odd question. Um, quote, Zebul stepped, stopped on one of the sea dark streets and prepared a gold moon intently. The guilty were punished, but why the innocent? This is the question we've discussed before. So many innocent people died in this thing. Um, why did they have to suffer? You wear the medallion of Mishakal the healer. Do you understand? Did the goddess explain it to you? Golden has, old gold moon hesitated. Startled by the question, searching within her soul for the answer. Riverwind stood beside her, stern and silent as always, his thoughts hidden. Often I myself have questioned, Goldmoon faltered. Moving near Riverwind, she touched his arm with her hand as though to reassure herself he was near. In a dream once, I was punished for my questioning for my lack of faith. Punished by losing the one I love. Riverwind put a strong arm around her and held her close. But whenever I feel ashamed of my questioning, I am reminded that it was my questioning that led to me find the ancient gods. Pretty uh, unsatisfactory explanation, if you ask me. Goes on, though. Quote, she was silent a moment. Riverwind stroked her silver gold hair, and she glanced up at him with a smile. No, she said softly to Zebula. I do not have the answer to this great riddle. That's a more honest answer, I find. Um, I still question. I still burn with anger when I see the innocent suffer and the guilty rewarded. But I know thou that my anger can be a, as a forging fire. In its heat, the raw lump of iron that is my spirit is tempered and shaped to form the shining rod of steel that is my faith. That rod supports my weak flesh. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I find it both troubling and a good thing that this world isn't. So a lot of these fantasy worlds are very cut and dry. Like uh, very black and white, you know. You know, especially the ones that are geared more to young adults, and this one kind of was, but that's why I think this steps out. It doesn't try to sugarcoat things that are awful things that happen to other people, and I think it's because the that balance thing that these gods have to, you know, they had to do that, like because this is the only thing that's going to restore that, you know that pendulum that swings back and forth. Sometimes good is going to have the right of way. Sometimes evil is going to have the right of way. And if one of them starts to get the, the, uh, that right of way, the neutrality comes in and yanks it back and says, uh-uh, you know, this is, that, it doesn't work that way. This is the way it works. That's why the three main gods of this world are the, are the siblings. There are three siblings from this place beyond, the, the chaos they call it. There's Paladine, the god of good, uh, Gillian, the god of neutrality, and uh, Tachesis, the queen of darkness, who's the god of goddess of evil. Um, they are equally powerful and they are seen as squabbling, especially, you know, the good god and the evil goddess. And then Gillian is like the calming influence. He's like the one who kind of says, guys, shut up, you know, just calming everybody down. I would actually venture a guess that he might be more powerful than both of them because that neutrality has to always be there, you know, but it's a, uh, you know, they discuss those things, and then uh, they ask where uh, Tekken and Karaman are, and um, Zebulon mentions her twin brother, his twin brother, and that's when we have a nice uh, description here. Quote, a dark line appeared between Goldmoon's finely drawn brows, her lips tightened. Pardon me, Lady of the Plains, Libya said with a slight smile, but I see the forging spire you spoke of blazes in your eyes. Goldmoon flushed. I told you I was still weak. I, sh- I should be able to accept Raceland and what he did to his brother without questioning. I should have faith that is all part of the greater good I cannot envision, but I'm afraid I can't. All I can do is pray that the gods keep him out of my path. Not me, said Weverwin suddenly, his voice harsh. Not me, repeated grimly. Um, 
I think he's saying that he would put he would wish that the gods would put race on in his path so he could do something about it. I mean, Riverwind started as a fairly. I mean, they all started fairly two dimensionally, but I, I like the way he fleshed him out. He was he loves his wife and wants to share her faith, but he's still a warrior and he's just like, I'll kill him if I can get my hands on him. You know what I mean? So I always thought that was kind of cool. Goldmoon wouldn't. She, you know, she's a cleric now. She's a healer. She can't cause death, you know, on purpose. Um, but Riverwind has not bound by such uh, <laughs> such things. So um, then we get flashback to uh, Caraman and Tika. They're in bed after, you know, I guess the aftermath of the lovemaking, whatever. Um, and Caraman is considering he, he loves her and laying there looking at her. She's asleep. Um, and he's considering the fact that Raceland is gone. And this is, you know, thrown him for a loop. Quote, I should be glad, Caraman told himself, staring in the darkness. I love Tika and I, and I have her love in return. And now we're free to, free to express that love. I can make that commitment to her. She can come first in all my thoughts. Now, she is loving, giving. She deserves to be loved. Raceland never did. At least that's what they all believe. How often I've heard Tannis ask Stern what he, when he thought I couldn't hear while I put up with the sarcasm, the bitter recriminations, the imperious commands. I've seen them look at me with pity. I know they think I'm slow thinking, and sometimes I am, compared to Raceland. I'm the ox slumbering along, bearing the burden without complaint. That's what they think of me. It's pretty insightful for, you know, what to all intents and purposes appears a pretty not intelligent lug. You know what I mean? But he's not. He's not dumb. Uh, he's just, I think he's naive a little bit and very caring and loving. You know, he's just one of those people. I mean... He wants to believe the best in people, basically, at all times. You know, and he's, that's just the way he is. Continues, though. Quote, they don't understand. They don't need me. Even Tika doesn't need me. Not like race needed me. See, that's unhealthy right there. He needs to be needed. That's not a good thing. That's codependent. So we get, we'll get into that later. Continues, quote, they never heard him wake screaming in the night when he was little. We were left alone so much, he and I. There was no one in there, there in the darkness to hear him and comfort him but me. He could never remember those dreams, but they were awful. His thin body shook with fear. His eyes were wild with the sight of terrors all he could see. He clutched at me, sobbing, and I'd tell him stories or make funny shadow pictures on the wall to drive away the horror. Look, Rice, I'd say, bunnies. And I'd hold up two fingers and wiggle them like a rabbit's ears. After a while, he'd stop trembling. He wouldn't laugh or he wouldn't smile or laugh. He never did either much, even when he was little, but he would relax. Um, I'm just going to read the rest of this because it's a fitting into the chapter and, you know, this, this part. Quote, I must sleep. I'm so tired, he'd, he'd whisper, holding my hand fast. But you stay awake, Carolyn. Guard my sleep. Keep them away. Don't let them get me. I'll stay awake. I won't let anything hurt you, Raced. I'd promise. Then he would smile almost, and exhausted, his eyes would close. I kept my promise. I would stay awake while he slept, and it was funny. Maybe I did keep them away, because as long as I was awake and watching, the night never, never came to him. Even when he was older, sometimes he'd still cry in the night and reach out to me, and I'd be there. But what will he do now? What will he do without me when he's alone, lost, and frightened in the darkness? What will I do without him? Caraman shut his eyes, and softly, fearful, waking Tika, he began to cry. Um, you know, you feel really bad for him, but again, needs to be needed. Um, this is a very, for a young adult adventure story, this is pretty heavy. Uh, well, there's lots of things about this book and this series of books that are heavy emotional stuff that is relationship stuff like the. The narcissism, like it's a lot of deals with a lot of narcissism. You have Raceland, who's a 
malignant narcissist and his sister, Kitiara being another malignant narcissist and people who try to love them and try to, you know, they hurt so many people because they're not really capable of it. You know, um, they, and they, and, and when they have flashes of it, it really bothers them because they feel like it's weakness. You know, Tannis being, of course, the one that Kitty, that could make Kitty R feel loved, the only one. That's why she, she kind of had contempt for him. Like she would think he's weak and, you know, had contempt for elves in general. Um, but with him, she would always try to make allowances and, you know, but it's part of all set that too. We'll get into the fact that she just at, one, at some point just wants to crush him, just feels the need to destroy him as a person. You know, you're going to run into those people. And uh, I think these books are, it's remarkable that they were using this format to tell something like that. You know what I mean? Um, and then Tannis's struggles with his duality of nature. You know, it's, of course, it's kind of hackneyed in the fact, in, in a way, I'm sorry, but that he's an elf and he has this nature that's calling out to a human woman and calling out to an elven woman. But it's more of an examination of somebody who is not of two different one fantastical race than the human it's more an examination of somebody who we all have that in us where you uh have that part of you that calls out to somebody that's a bad person but you try to love them and somebody who is a good person but for some reason they don't do it for you you know so i think we've all run into that i mean that's a pretty common thing but it's not a common uh it's not a common topic in fantasy especially of this level because you have what's known as high fantasy, where they would discuss things like this, and they do, they do go into things like that quite a lot. Um, it's Martin doesn't really go into it much. He's more political and things like that. You know what I mean? But he's he could do it. He just doesn't choose to. Um, then they start talking about Naraka. You know, that's where the queen of the temple for the queen of darkness is. Barum flips out. Um, and then uh, Apoletta um, are, is discussing with Tannis. I think they're speaking in Elven, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Quote, how old do you say he was? Apoletta asked. Over 300 years or so, he claims Tannis said and discussed. If you only believe half of what he says, that cuts it down to 150, which doesn't seem too plausible either, not for a human. You know, replied Apoletta thoughtfully, the Queen's Temple at Naraka is a mystery to us. It appeared suddenly after the cataclysm, so far as we've been able to determine. Now we find this man who would trace his own history to that same same time and place. It is strange, said Tannis, glancing again at Barum. Yes, it may be nothing more than coincidence, but follow coincidence far enough and you'll find it tied to fate, so as my husband says. That's a pretty good quote. Um, and then... You know, Tannis is doubtful. Quote, coincidence or not, I don't see myself walking into the temple of the Queen of Darkness and asking why she's searching for the world for a man with a green gemstone buried in his chest, Tannis at Riley, sitting down near the water's edge. I suppose not, Appaletta admitted. Appaletta. It's hard to believe, though, from what you say, that the, that the, that she has grown so powerful. What have the good dra- dragons been doing all this time? Good dragons, Tannis repeated, astounded. What good dragons? Now was Appaletta's turn to look amazed. You know, apparently people weren't aware of good dragons, even though it's only been 300 years since their existence. That doesn't make, you know, it wouldn't make sense. I don't think that Tannis wouldn't be aware of them because as people were alive during that time, they would have known dragons were real. You know, he would have heard it from somebody, you know, I don't know. Quote, why the good dragons? Uh, Appaletta says the silver dragons and gold dragons, bronze dragons and the dragon lances. Sure. The silver dragons gave you those that were in their keeping. 
I've never heard of Silver Dragons, Tannis replied, except an old so- some old song about Huma. The same with Dragon Lances. We've been searching for them so long without a trace, I was beginning to believe they didn't exist except in children's stories. I don't like this. Appaletta rested her chin on her hands, her face drawn and pale. Something's wrong. Where are the good dragons? Why aren't they fighting? At first, I discounted rumors of the sea dragons returned, for I knew the good dragons would never permit it. But if the good dragons have disappeared, as I must believe from talking with you, half-elf, then I fear my people are truly in danger. She lifted her head, listening. Um, this That kind of settles the the issue for Appaletta. She... The Barum thing. She starts to see that there is a connection, and she's gonna instead of just you know flopping them off and saying no, I'm not taking anywhere. She she thinks that it's probably a good idea and, a, and her responsibility to help the world and take them back to the surface. Um, then uh, Tika and Caraman come into the room, and we get a uh, Tannis's point of view from that quote. Tannis looked back at Caraman and could barely restrain an exclamation of dismay. He would not have recognized the jovial, good-natured warrior in this man with the grim, tear-straked face, the haunted, shadowed eyes. Seeing Tannis's shocked look, Tika drew near Caraman, Caraman and slipped her hand through his arm. At her touch, the warrior seemed to awaken from his dark thoughts. He smiled down at her. There was something in Caraman's smile, a gentleness, a sorrow that had never been there before. Um, then Zebula and Apolletta fall into a discussion about you know, as we said before, I think she feels an obligation. She, you know, she appears to be a good character. They don't go a lot into her. Um, Zebula, oddly enough, was they did a whole thing where they reshuffled Crin and changed the magic and all that stuff. Where Zebula was, uh, had become a main character and, and leaves, his magic won't work anymore under the water. So he leaves and comes to the surface. And it's, I didn't care for the the Wikipedia. Because I this Wikipedia is a you know you got a wiki of of this world of course and I didn't care for the story they were laying out with them like that doesn't that appears to me to be sad and like not terribly interesting you know so uh, but right he, now I can, all I can think about is the way you pronounce Wikipedia 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 so what Wikipedia Wikipedia whatever it's uh, all I can think about okay it consumes my every emotion I'm sure it does. Um, I'm so mad right now. <laughs> um, Appaletta then speaks up. Uh, quote, I've considered, Appaletta replied, the half-elf said we should be concerned about what happens in the world. He is right. The same thing could happen to us that happened to our Sylvanesti cousins. They renounced the world and allowed dark and evil things to creep into their land. We have been warned in time. We can fight the evil. Your coming here may have saved us, half-elf, she said earnestly. We owe you something in return. Um and then they ask where they should, where she should take him, and she's like, "Well, we, we can take you to." She, he, they asked to be taken to the Palanthus, where they think you know is really would be a good place to go, because then they can decide where they're going to strike out from there, and it's a p- position of strength. But she tells them they can only uh, take him to Calaman, which is a smaller place. Um, Tannis, hold on. And I'm quiet here. I'm, I'm, I have read this, of course, but I always, it, it sometimes it is complex. Um, and I've highlighted stuff that I thought would be important, but appears to not to be sometimes. <laughs> but this, this does, I uh, mean, it's more about along the discussion of advancing the story. And, uh, and Tannis turns to ask them if they have any more suggestions about where to go. And he's uncertain. So Goldman steps forward. 
Quote, shall I tell you a story, half-elf, she said, resting her gentle hand upon his arm, a story of a woman and man lost and alone and frightened, bearing a great burden, they came to an end. The woman sang a song, a blue crystal staff performed a miracle, performed a miracle, a mob attacked them. One man stood up, one man took charge. One man, a stranger, said, we'll go out through the kitchen. She smiled. Do you remember Tannis? I remember, he whispered, caught and held her by a beautiful, sweet expression. We're waiting, Tannis, she said simply. Tears dimmed his vision. Tannis blinked rapidly, then glanced around. Riverwind's stern face was relaxed. Was relaxed. Smiling a half-smile, he laid his hand on Tannis's arm. Caraman hesitated a moment, then striding forward, embraced Tannis in one of his bear-like hugs. And Tannis decides for them to take them to Calaman. Um, there's a part uh, where they wake up on the shore. Uh, they for some reason have trouble remembering Istar. I don't. I don't get that part of it. Uh, it seemed to me would be pertinent information, especially the discussions they had there. Like this is pretty, you know, world shaking stuff. Maybe we should remember some of this. But I think they that was the wizard trying to keep. listen. There's a lot going on, right? <laughs> it was a wizard. I think <laughs> I would think that was a probably the wizard's hand in it, trying to keep them from rem- remembering that place so they wouldn't trouble his world. I, I would almost guarantee that his uh, elven wife would be fairly angry with him had she discovered that's what happened um but anyway uh it's a part where a fisherman and his son are you know just sitting out fishing and drawing in their net and they see these people laying on the sand um and then they find out the things that have been happening they find out about the golden general and the you know uh, the good dragons turning back the evil dragons, you know, and apparently it's a, it's a great victory and all those things. Um, but then they're, they're going into the city. Um, and again, pr- this has been a pretty grim part. So they, Caraman suggests they buy weapons. So he reaches for his purse um, and then it's gone. <laughs> and quote, wait a minute, Caraman grunted, feeling his belt. Why? What the? My purse was here a second ago. Wearing around the big warrior caught a glimpse of a small figure disappearing among the crush of people, a worn leather pouch in his hand. Hey, you, that's mine, Caraman roared. Scattering people like straws in the wind, he leaped after the small thief. Reaching out a huge hand, he caught hold of a fleecy vest and plucked the squirming figure up off the street. Now give me back, the warrior gasped. Tasselhoff, Caraman Tasselhoff cried. Caraman dropped him in astonishment. Tasselhoff stared around wildly. Tannis, he shouted, seeing the half-elf coming through the crowd. Oh, Tannis. Running forward, Tannis threw his arms around his friend, burying his face in Tannis' belt. The kinder burst into tears. Um, I mean, of course. What are the odds of that? Uh, in a city, you know, not good, but this is a fantasy world, so... Uh, maybe we can imagine some god kind of nudged it that way, like you know, maybe the god of good is like, oh, they have to get back together. Come on, you know, we'll we'll do it that way. Um, then we have the reunion they have with uh, Flint and Tasov. Remember, Lauren's been taken by Lord Soth, and she's in in the possession of Kittyar. Um, quote: It was a sad reunion. In hush and broken voices, broken voices, Flint and Tasshoff took turns telling their friends what had happened since they were parted in Tarsus months ago. One would talk until overcome, then the other would ca- carry on the story. Thus, the, com- the companions heard of the discovery of the dragon lances, the destruction of the dragon orb, and Storm's death. Tannis bowed his head, overwhelmed with star- sorrow at this news. For a moment, he couldn't imagine the world without his this noble friend. Seeing Tannis's grief. 
Flint's gruff voice went on to tell of Sturm's great victory and the peace he had found in death. He's a hero in Slavnia now, Flint said. Already already they're telling stories of him like they do of Huma. His great sacrifice saved the knighthood, or so he said. He would ask for nothing more, Tannis. Um, I always felt that that deserved more. Um, you know, this is a... I know their brevity is a thing with these books. You can only make about 350 pages long. You know, they could have written to be... If they, I mean, and they were had the skill to make them as long as a George R. R. Martin book, you know, a thousand plus pages. They could have done that, um, but I'm sure the publishers are like, look, we're not writing a book like that. We're not writing Lord of the Rings. You have to keep them under a certain page count, or people, kids are not going to read them. You know, there's a reason kids don't read. Well, not kids like me who read Lord of the Rings when I was. I mean, it's one of the first things I remember reading. So, um, and The Hobbit, which is much shorter, but you know. Um, then they, uh, then Tannis, they hadn't got into uh, what happened with Lorana. And uh, Tannis, of course, would be eagerly looking for Lorana. Um, quote, go on, he said, tell me what Lorana did when she arrived in Palanthus. And is she still there? It said we were thinking about going. Flint and Taz exchanged glances. The dwarf's head bowed. The kinder looked away, snuffling and wiping his small nose with a handkerchief. What is it, Tannis asked in a voice he didn't recognize as his own. Tell me. Slowly, Flint related the story. I'm sorry, Tannis, the dwarf said, wheezing. I let her down. The old dwarf began to sob so pitifully that Tannis's heart ached with sorrow. Clasping his friends in his arms, he held him tightly. It wasn't your fault, Flint, he said, his voice harsh with tears. It's mine, if anyone's. It was for me she risked death and worse. Start placing blame and you end up cursing the gods, said Riverwind, laying his hand on Tannis' shoulder. Thus do my people say. Tannis was not comforted. What time is the dark lady to come? That's, of course, we know Kitty Ora. Noon, said Tannis softly. Now it was nearly noon and Tannis stood with the arrival of the citizens of... Stood stood with the citizens of Calaman, waiting for the arrival of the Dark Lady. Gilthanus stood some distance from Tannis, pointedly ignoring him. The half-elf couldn't blame him. Gilthanus knew why Lauren had left. He knew what bait Kittyara had used to snare his sister. When Tannis, when he asked Tannis coldly if it was true that he had been with the Dragon Highlord, Kittyara, Tannis could not deny it. Um, I don't blame Gilthanus for being upset. You know, he's... It was Tannis' actions that led to this, you know. Um, you can argue about his motivations, but, uh, you know, I never cared for Gilton as much of a character as a character. He's kind of boring. You know, uh, the only, the most exciting thing about him is that he fell in love with a dragon, like literally. So, um, anyway, then Kitty Ara arrives, quote, the blue dragon circled lazily above the city in slow spirals, then landed leisurely within bowshot of the city walls. A deathly hush fell upon the city as the dragon's rider stood up in the stirrups. Removing her helm, the dark lady began to speak, her voice ringing through the clear air. By now you have heard that I have captured the elf woman you call the Golden General, Kittyar shouted. In case you need proof, I have this to show you. She raised her hand. Tennis saw the flash of sunlight on a beautifully crafted silver helm. In my other hand, though you cannot see it from where you stand, I have a lock of golden hair. I will leave you both he- both these here on the plain when I depart, that you may have something to remember your general by. There was a harsh murmur from the people lining the walls. Kitty Yara stopped speaking a moment regarding them coldly. God, she uh, fucking hate her. Watching her, Tannis dug his nails into his flesh to force himself to remain calm. He caught himself contemplating a mad scheme to leap from the wall and attack her where she stood. That's to his credit. I think he actually would have done that. He would have tried to kill her, and no holds barred. 
Goldman, quote, Goldman, seeing the wild, desperate look on his face, moved near and laid her, laid her hand on his arm. She felt his body shaking. Then he, then he stiffened at her touch, bringing himself under control. Looking down at his clenched hands, she, she was horrified to see blood trickling down his wrists. The elf maid, I'm not going to say Lorana's full name here, Lorana, uh, has been taken to the Queen of Darkness in Araka. He will remain a hostage with the Queen until the following conditions are met. First, the Queen demands that a human called Barum, the Everman, be turned over to her immediately. Second, she demands that the good dragons return to Sanction, where they will give themselves up to Lord Ariacus. Finally, the elf war Gilthanus will call for the Knights of Slamnia and the elves of both Quailness and Sylvanity tribes to lay down their arms. The dwarf Flint Fire Forge will require of his people that they do the same. What authority does flint fireforge have over both the uh, the hill dwarves and the mountain dwarves who are now fighting with each other for the first time in a couple hundred years good sir who do you think you are <laughs> he's an old he's not from a noble family or anything like that. he's a very well respected guy within the community but he ha- this is obviously a ruse this is not you know this is not going to work they know it's not going to work i think it's a distracting tactic um and guiltiness to his credit you know Seize it. Quote, this is madness, Gilthana called out an answer, stepping forward to the edge of the wall and staring down at the dark lady. We cannot agree to these demands. We have no idea who this barum is or where to find him. I can't answer for my people, nor can I answer for the good dragons. These demands are totally unreasonable. The queen is not unreasonable, Kitty Arthur replied smoothly. Her dark majesty has foreseen that these demands will need time to be acted upon. It is a delaying tactic. You have three weeks. If within that time you have not found the man Barum, who we believe to be in the area around Flotsam, and if you have not sent away the good dragons, I will return in this time. You will find more than a lock of your general's hair before the heads of Cal- gates of Calaman. Kitty Arthur paused. You will find her head. I've in in from a writer's standpoint and seeing other writers that the Kitty R pause was not necessary. They should he. The basic you will you will find her head is much more to the point and shocking, I think. So anyway, uh, with that, she gets back on her rag and flies off. Horrible piece of shit that she is. Um, Quote, for long moments, no one spoke or moved. The people stared down at the helm lying before the wall. The red ribbons fluttering bravely from the top of the silver helm seemed the only movement, the only color. Then someone cried out in terror, pointing. Upon the horizon appeared an incredible sight. So awful was it that no one believed it in it at first, each thinking privately he must be going mad. But the object drifted closer, and all were forced to admit its reality. That did not diminish the horror. Thus it was that the people of Kryn had their first, that's actually not true, I'll get into that in a second, had their first glimpse of Laura Ryak's most ingenious war machine, the Flying Citadels. Working in depths of the temples of sanction, the black-robed magic users and dark clerics ripped a castle from its foundations and sent it into the skies. Now floating upon dark gray storm clouds, lit by jagged barbs of white lightning, surrounded by a hundred flights of red and black dragons, the citadel loomed over Calaman, blocking out the noon sun, casting its dreadful shadow over the city. The people fled the walls in terror, dragon fear worked its terrible spell, causing panic and despair to fall upon all who dwelt in Calaman. But the Citadels of Dragons did not attack. Three weeks their Dark Queen had ordered. They would give these wretched humans three weeks, and they would keep time they would keep watch to see that during this time the knights and the good dragons did not take the field. Um There is a part of the Taudas source book where <sighs> these were not from Ancelon. So this thing says these flying citadels are these giant chunks of rock that, as I said, use magic and stuff to float in the air. It might be if that if that sports source book was true that they were from Taldus, that they are the gnomes there who are both skilled in massive technology and magic had had done this. They had 
you know, chiseled a, a, a fortress out and had gotten it to float, but then it kind of got away from him. And then, uh, Ariacus had claimed one or maybe even more, might be more than a, more than one and had brought it over to Ancelon to use it. Um, that would have been a nice link between the two continents, you know, and actually when you, when they go into the, the Citadel later, when they have a big fight, which is going to be in the next part, it, which is an awesome giant fight that really, I mean, it's, it's worthy of, of any fantasy, you know, the, the end showdown, you know, remember, the, the long night and things like that. You know, remember growing up <clears throat> watching college football on Saturday and you'd tune into CBS and some sec team was just beating down the Citadel. That's all I could think about. <laughs> yeah. Every time you, you mentioned the Citadel, Florida would hang 80 on them in the first half and play their third stringers. The, the thing I think about when the Citadel is uh, Hank Hill trying to explain why he loves fishing. And one of the things he said was, he's like, when you're out there fishing, you don't have to think about that pushy gal trying to get into the Citadel. <laughs> 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 he some of the things he said would so not go over today. Well, I mean, in context of the character, he's just a moderately conservative guy who. Well, like, he and you know, there's always this. Of course, we're going to go into. The, there's this giant discussion uh, apparently on the internet. Would would Hank Hill vote for Donald Trump? No, no, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't vote. vote. He would vote for a libertarian before exactly. He'd be like, I can't vote for that idiot. You I'll, know, I'll write in Ronald Reagan. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> Ronald Reagan's dead. Still better than Trump. I like him. <laughs> Um, Tannis then after this whole thing tells Barum, you're going with me to Naraka. We're going to go back and get Lorana. We, you know, we're, we're going to not back. We're going to get Lorana. You're coming with me. I don't care if I have to drag you there. And of course he's going to try to go alone. I mean, it's Tannis. He's not going to try to drag his friends in this, but you know, of course that's not going to happen. Quote, turning abruptly, he was, not surprised to feel a strong hand grip his arm. I know what you're going to say, Caraman. Tannis did not turn around, and the answer is no. Barriman and I are going alone. Then you'll go to your death saloon, Caraman said quietly, holding on to Tannis firmly. If so, then that's what I'll do. Tannis tried without success to break free of the big man. Yeah, there's nothing you could do from that guy grabbing you. <laughs> I'm not taking any of you with me. And you'll fail, Caraman said. Is that what you want? Are you going to just find a way to die that will end your guilt? That's pretty poignant coming from Caraman. Um, if so, I can offer you my sword right now. But if you truly want to free Lorana, then you're going to need help. The gods have reunited us, Skullman said gently. They have brought us together again in our time of greatest need. It is a sign from the gods, Tannis. Don't deny it. The half-elf bowed his head. He could not cry. There were no tears left. Tazhoff's small hand slipped into his. That's just the worst. I mean, that's the most gut-wrenching thing. It's like, imagine that. He'd come up and grab his friend's hand, that little lovable thief. Besides, said the kinder cheerfully, think how much trouble you get into without me. So, um, after this, they're, just, they're, they're making their plans to go and all this stuff. And Gilthanus and Tannis have a moment that I thought was good, but unlikely. I would think that Gilthanus would hate him for the rest of his life over this. Um, but they actually come to an understanding. And then Gilthanus is given the, um, it's a story. Plot, of course, because that's too many characters to manage, you know, going on this journey to Naraka. And he's not, again, terribly interesting. So uh, he's given over the uh, protection of the city and things like that, which is, you know, he's a good commander and everything. But um, 
Lord Kaloff, this guy who comes to him with the, with the this thing. Quote, I have a suggestion, my lord, he said respectfully. You have a per- person here well qualified to take over the dis- defense of this city. You, half-elf, inter- inter- interrupted Gilthinus with a bitter smile. No, Tannis said gently, you, Gilthinus. An elf, said Lord Kaloff in amazement. Well, actually, it's Tannis's idea. He was in Tarsus. He has had experience fighting the Draconians and the dragons. The good dragons trust him and will follow his judgment. Um, then we get a moment with... Uh, Gilthinus actually kind of softening some. Quote, Once inside the small, luxuriously appointed room, both men stood in uncomfortable silence for long moments, neither looking at the other directly. Gilthinus was the first to break the silence. I have always despised humans, the elf lord said slowly, and now I find myself preparing to take on the responsibility of protecting them. He smiled. It is a good feeling, he added softly, looking directly at Tennis for the first time. Um, and then they have kind of a reckoning. Quite. Uh, shoot quote wait Gilfinus put his hand on the half elf's arm because um, he's getting me to leave I want to tell you I'm sorry about what I said this morning no Tannis don't leave hear me out this isn't easy for me Gilfinus paused a moment I've learned a great deal Tannis about myself the lessons have been hard ones I forgot them when I heard about Lorana I was angry and frightened I wanted to hit someone you were the closest target what Lorana did she did have love for you I'm learning about love too Tannis or what I'm, I'm trying to learn he's of course talking about being in love with Silvara his voice was bitter. Mostly I'm learning about pain. That's my problem. Tannis was watching him now. Gilthinus' hand was still on his shoulder. And I know now, after I've had time to think, Gilthinus continued softly, that what Lana did was right. She had to go. Her love would have been meaningless. She had faith in you, believed, you enough, believed in you enough to go to when she, to go to you. Man, it's sometimes complex to say all this stuff. When she heard you were dying, even though it meant going to the evil to that evil place. Tannis's head bowed. Gilthinus gripped him tightly, both his hands on his shoulder. Theros Ironfeld said once that in all the years he had lived, he had never seen anything done out of love come to evil. That is not true. <laughs> um, I, that's just my opinion. Lots of lots of things that are done for love turn to awful things. But that's just my opinion. Quote, we have to believe that, Tannis. What Lorana did, she did out of love. What you do now, you do out of love. Surely the gods will bless that. Um, that doesn't sit well with Tannis. I mean, uh, he actually is more cynical in line, in line with my thinking. Quote, did they bless Sturm? Tannis asked harshly. He loved. Didn't they? How do you know? Tannis's hands, hand closed over Gilthinus. He shook his head. He wanted to believe. It seemed wonder. It sounded wonderful, beautiful, just like tales of dragons. As a child, he'd wanted to believe in dragons too. Sighing, sighing, he walked away from the elf lord. His hand was on the doorknob when Gelthinus spoke again. Well, farewell, brother. It's kind of a nice moment between those two. Um, then they're leaving. Uh, quote, the, command, the companions met by the wall. At the secret door, Tasselhoff found that led up and over the walls and out into the plains beyond. Remember, his uh, family uh, would sneak into places. I can't even imagine a kinder family what that would be like. Just, you know, nobody with any real responsibility, them letting the kids run wild. You know what I mean? Like, but uh, but lovable kids who are stealing stuff from you, but they're so cute you can't even, you know. A kinder kid would be the cutest kid ever. So, um Gilthinus could, of course, have given them permission, again, quote, Gilthinus could, of course, have given them permission to leave by the front gates, but the fewer people who knew this dark journey, the better as far as Tannis was concerned. Now they were gathered inside the small room at the top of the stairs. Solinary was just 
Solinari was just sinking behind the distant mountains. Tana, standing apart from the others, watched the moon as its last silvery rays touched the battlements of the horrible citadel hovering above them. He could see lights in the floating castle. Dark shapes moved around. Moved around. Who lived in that dreadful thing? Draconians? The black-robed mages and dark clerics whose power had torn it from the soil and now kept it drifting among masses of thick gray clouds? Behind him, he heard the others talking in soft voices. All except for Barum. The everyman, the everyman looking, everyman, <laughs> uh, watched close, over closely by Caraman to sit apart, his eyes wide and fearful. Um, this is when we have a moment where, I know it's a plot device too, but it was a skilled uh, way to keep the uh, number of characters that you had to manage down, but also a nice write-out. I love write-outs. Futurama, at the end of that show, wrote out every character perfectly. So did King of the Hill. You know, you have to give them a satisfactory end to their story. Um, this is not necessarily an end, but they didn't know they were going to write another series, I don't think. they. I thought they, I think they hoped they would. Um, but, you know, uh, let's get into it. Quote, is it time? Tessoff asked eagerly. Tennis smiled, his hand reaching out fondly to stroke Tez's ridiculous top knot of hair. In a changing world, kinders remain constant. Yes, Tennis said, it is time. His eyes went to Riverwind for some of us. As the plainsman met the half-elf's steady, unwavering gaze, the thoughts in his mind were reflected in his face as clear to Tennis as clouds flitting across the night sky. First, Riverwind, Riverwind was uncomprehending. Perhaps he had not even heard Tennis's words. Then the plainsman realized what had been said. Now he understood, and his stern, rigid face flushed. The brown eyes flared. Tennis said nothing. He simply shifted in this case, the gold moon. Um, he's telling them that they can't come with him. Quote, walking to him, Tannis put his hands on the tall man's shoulders, looking into the plainsman's dark eyes. Your work is done, my friend, Tannis said. You have walked winter's path far enough. Here our roads separate. Ours leads into a bleak desert. Yours wins its way in through green and blossoming trees. This is a little flowery, but I still like it. Quote, you have a responsibility to the son or daughter you are bringing into the world. Remember, Goldmoon's pregnant. He put his hand on Goldmoon's shoulder, now drawing her near, seeing her about to protest. The baby will, the baby will be born in the autumn, Tennis said softly. When the Valenwoods are red and golden, don't cry, my dear. He gathered Goldmoon into his arms. The Valenwoods will grow again, and you will take the young warrior or the young maiden into solace, and you will tell him a story of two people who loved each other so much they brought hope into a world of dragons. He kissed her beautiful hair. Then Tika, weeping softly, took his place, bidding Goldmoon farewell. Tannis turned to Riverwind. The plainsman's stirred mask was gone. His face showed plainly the marks of his grief. Tannis could see himself. Tannis himself could barely see through his tears. Gilthanus will need help planning the defense of the city. Tannis cleared his throat. I wish to the gods that this was truly the end of your dark winter, but I'm afraid it must last a little longer. The gods are with us, my friend, my brother. Riverwind said brokenly, embracing the half elf. Maybe they with you. May they be with you as well. We will wait here for your return. Um, I always thought that was a nice, that's a nice parting. Um, this book is a, a, a lot about partings, you know, uh, it's the end of the series. Um, this, well, actually it's not, there's another, actually another Chronicles book that they wrote, I think at least 20 years after this one. So, um, maybe not 20 years, maybe like 15. Um, and then they're moving out to, they get past the uh, walls of the city. Quote, one by one, he watched them run across a strip of oak and grassland, racing to reach a shelter of the grove of trees beyond. Here, small, fast-flying fast brass dragons waited to carry them into the mountains. 
My turn, Tennis realized, seeing the others safely sheltered within the grove. This is it. For good or for evil, the story is drawing near its end. Glancing up, he saw Goldmoon and Riverwind watching from the small window in the tower room. For good or for evil. What if it does end in darkness, Tennis wondered for the first time. What will become of the world? What will become of those I'm leaving behind? Instead of he looked up at these two people who were dear to him as a family he'd never known. And as he watched, he saw Gold Moon light a candle. For a brief instant, the flame illuminated her face and river winds. They raised their hands in parting, then extinguished the flame, lest unfriendly eyes see it. Taking a deep breath, Tennis turned and tempts himself to run. To run. The darkness might conquer, but it could never extinguish hope. And then one, ca- or though one candle or many might flicker and die, new candles will be lit from the old. Thus, hope's flame always burns, lighting in darkness until the coming of the day. That that particular moment right there would make a powerful scene in a movie. You know, where they're waving them goodbye and they're like, you know, they pretty much all think they're going to die. And, you know, they have reason to believe so. I mean, things are not hopeful at the moment. So, Um, but uh, uh, these two writers, as we talked before, seem to have a skillful uh, need, uh, skillful uh, awareness of, well, we need to lighten this up because this is dark stuff. So the next chapter cuts to the name of the chapter in part of book there's different books in the, within the book, you know, book one, book two, the book three, this is the beginning of book three. And the chapter is called an old man and a golden dragon, which is, I, I love this quote. He was an ancient gold dragon, the oldest of his kind in his day. He had been a fierce warrior. The scar of his victories were visible in his wrinkled golden skin. His name had once been as shining as his glories, but he had forgotten it long ago. A few of the younger, irreverent gold dragons referred to him affectionately as pyrite, fool's gold, due to his not infrequent habit of mentally fading out of the present and reliving his past. Kind of reminds me of that uh, red dragon, uh, Mataflor, or uh, Flamestrike, from the first book. You know, she saved basically everybody by killing... Uh, that younger big red dragon and uh, Verminard. Well, they killed Verminard, but she, you know, saved everybody pretty much. Quote, most of his teeth were gone. It had been eons since he had munched up a nice bit of deer meat or torn apart a goblin. He was able to gum a rabbit now and then, but mostly he lived on oatmeal. <laughs> when Pyrite lived in the present, he was an intelligent, if irascible companion. His vision was dimming, though he refused to admit it, and he was as deaf as a doorknob. His mind was quick. His conversation was still as sharp as a tooth, so the saying went among dragons. It was just that he rarely discussed the same topic as anyone else in his company. <laughs> but, when he was back in the, but when he was back in his past, the other golds took to their caves, for when he remembered them, he could still throw spells remarkably well, and his breath weapons were as effective as ever. On this day, however, Pirate was neither in past nor in present. He lay on the plains of Eastwild, napping in the warm spring sunshine. Next to him sat an old man doing the same thing, his head pellet on the dragon's flank. A battered and shapeless pointed hat rested over the old man's face to shield his eyes from the sun. We all know who this is. A long white beard flowed out from under the, under the hat. Booted feet stuck out from beneath the long mouse-colored robes. Both slept soundly. The golden dragon's flanks heaved and thrummed with his wheezing breath. The old man's mouth was wide open, and he sometimes woke himself with, with a prodigious snore. When this happened, he would sit bolt upright, setting his hat rolling onto the ground, which did not help his appearance, and looked around in alarm. Seeing nothing, he would grunt to himself in annoyance, replace his hat after he had found it, poke the dragon irritably in the ribs, and then go back to sleep. Um... A casual passerby might have wondered what in the name of the abyss these two were doing, calmly sleeping on the plains of Estwild, even though it was a fine. That's Estwild. It's not Eastwild. I don't know why this is called Eastwild. Uh, 
though it was a fine, warm spring day, the passerby might have supposed the two were waiting for someone, for the old man would occasionally awaken, remove his hat, and peer solemnly up into the empty sky. A passerby might have wondered, had there been any passerby, there were not, at least no friendly ones. The plains of Estwild were crawling with the Draconian and Goblin troops. If the two knew, knew they were napping in a dangerous place, they did not seem to bind. Well, of course they wouldn't mind, because they're both immensely powerful. Um... I think we've discussed it before. Um, Fizban is way more than he appears. I don't know if I've actually revealed who he is. Um, but gold dragons are like maybe the most powerful beings on this planet. Like they're, they're the highest. They're, they're, they're contempt. Their opposite would be a red dragon. Red dragons get really big and they're powerful. But the gold dragons, and there's also some, you know, disagreement here sometimes they portray gold dragons without wings sometimes they portray them with i like them without because that's means that they're so powerful and magical that they can fly without them they, they just, just propel them yeah they're just they're just by force of will you know um they are immensely powerful they you know gold dragons once they enter a fight everybody just like shits themselves because there's not much you can do about it you know, they're just going to beat your ass is what's going to happen red dragons fear them you know um Red dragons aren't cowards. They'll fight him, but they... Would Ricky the dragon steamboat <laughs> fear them? He didn't fear anybody. What about the Vic steamboat? <laughs> What's who? Vic steamboat. Who's that? His brother. Oh, God. Um, well, then a uh, pirate has a dream. Quote, we've got to reach the battle in time, uh, pirate cried fiercely. Humans fighting alone. Um, well, actually, Fizban, who we all know this is, is trying to wake up the dragon so he can... You know, they get on their way to their task, you know, um, and he's having trouble waking them up. So he says, uh, he, he tells them they're in the middle of a war and then that wakes the dragon up. Quote, we've got to reach the battle in time. Pirate cried fiercely. Humans fighting alone. Human, the old man snorted. Well, you're not going to arrive in time for that battle. A few hundred years late. But that's not the battle I had in mind. It's those four dragons there to, to the east. Evil creatures. We've got to stop them. Dragons. Oh, yes, I see them, roared Pyrite, swooping up in hot pursuit of two extremely startled and highly insulted eagles. <laughs> um, no, no, yelled the old man, kicking the dragon in the flanks. East, you ninny. Fly two more, two more points to the east. Are you sure you're my wizard? Pyrite asked in a deep voice. My, river, my wizard never spoke to me in that tone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a sorry, old fellow, the old, the old man said quickly, just a bit nervous. Upcoming conflict and all that. By the gods, there are four dragons, Pyrite said in astonishment, having just caught a blurred glimpse of them. Take me in close so I can get a good shot at them, and the old man shouted. I have a really wonderful spell. Fireball. Now he mattered enough. I can remember just how that goes. I mean, it's... You got to love Fizban. He's almost as pleasant a character as Tasselhoff. That's why they work so well together. You know, Tasselhoff is rarely the straight man, but he becomes a straight man when Fizban shows up because he's trying to, he's so befuddled, you know. Um, obviously, these are not four evil dragons. These are the four brass dragons that are taking the companions, you know, to Naraka or as close as they can get. Quote, two dragon army officers rode among the flight of four brass dragons. One rode at the front. A bearded man, his, held seem, his helm seemed slightly large for him and worn, was worn pulled well, well down over his face, shadowing his eyes. The officer, other officer rode behind the group. He was a huge man, Nero splitting out of his black armor. He wore no helm. There probably wasn't large, one large enough, one large enough, but his face was grim and watchful, particularly over the prisoners who rode the four dragons in the center of the flight. It was an odd assortment of prisoners, a woman dressed in mismatched armor, a dwarf, a kinder, and a middle-aged man with long, unke- unkempt gray hair. Um, 
there's so much. I could read this entire thing because it's one of the best parts of the book where Pyrite and Fizban are going to attack them and, you know, swoop down on my, of course, you know, I, I've, well, we've discussed the shows have been getting longer because I'm getting more, I think I'm getting better at, you know, the discussion part of it as opposed to just reading stuff. But again, I wish I could have read the whole thing, but we have to, in the interest of brevity, um, Tana sees them coming. Quote, Streaking down and out of the sky, diving straight through him was a golden dragon. Riding on the dragon was an old man, his white hair flying out behind him. He lost his hat. His long white beard blowing back over his shoulders. The dragon's mouth was bared in a snarl that would have been vicious if it hadn't been toothless. I think we're under attack, Harriman said in awe. Tannis had come to the same conclusion. Scatter, he yelled, swearing under his breath. Down below them, an entire division of draconians watched the aerial battle with intense interest. The last thing he'd wanted to do was call attention to the group. Now some crazy old man was ruining everything. The four dragon hearing Tannis's command broke instantly from formation, but not soon enough. A brilliant fireball burst right in their midst, sending the dragons reeling in the sky. Momentarily blinded by the brilliant light, Tannis dropped the reins and threw his arms around the creature's neck as it went rolling out of control. Then he heard a familiar voice. That got him? Wonderful spell, fireball. Fizban Tannis groaned. Blinking his eyes, he fought desperately to bring his dragon under control, but it seemed the beast knew how to handle himself better than the inexperienced rider, for the brass soon righted himself. Now that Tannis could see, he flashed a glance around the, at the others. They appeared unhurt, but they were scattered all over the sky. The old man and his companion were pursuing Caraman. The old man had his hand outstretched, apparently all set to cast another devastating spell. Caraman was yelling and gesturing. He, too, had re- recognized the befuddled old mage. Um... I didn't highlight this part, but I, I have to read it. Quote, racing toward Fizban from behind came Flint and Tasselhoff, the kinder shrieking in glee and waving his hands. Flint hanging, his he- hanging on for uh, dear life. The dwarf looked positively green. Um, then Fizban uh, shoots lightning at Caraman and barely misses. You know, this is, this is a big misadventure. You know, um, just two old men who think they're doing the right thing, you know? Um, and then Tannis points at his dragon. Uh, he, he urges his dragon, quote, attack, he commanded the dragon. Don't hurt him. Just drive him out of there. To his amazement, the brass refused. Shaking his head, the dragon man circle and suddenly occurred to Tannis. It suddenly occurred to Tannis that the creature intended to land. What? Are you mad? Tannis swore the dragon. You're taking us down to the dragon armies. The beast knew how to handle. Well, no, same. Uh, in vain, Tannis pleaded with his dragon. Baron, sitting behind Tika, clutched the woman so desperately she could barely breathe. The Everman's eyes were on the Draconians, who were swarming over the plains toward where the dragons were going to land. Karen was flailing about wildly, trying to avoid the lightning bolts that zapped all around him. Flynn had even come to life, tugging frantically as dragons ranged, roaring in anger. While Tannis was still yelling wildly at Fizban, the old man followed after them, like, after them all hurting the brass dragons before him like sheep. Um... They get into this big discussion about um, Tannis is trying to get everybody together, and uh, the the dragons, the brass dragons, land, and we get a uh, another suggestion of uh, of who uh, Fizban really is and how powerful he is. Quote, just as he started to order them into battle, Tannis, that is, the old man came running up from where he had landed his ancient gold dragon. Shoo, said the old man to the brass dragon. Shoo, get away. Go back to wherever you came from. No, wait. Tennis normally t- tore out his beard in frustration, watching as the old man ran among the brass dragons, waving his arms like a farmer's wife driving her chickens to shelter. Then the half elf stopped swearing, for to his astonishment, the brass dragons prostrated themselves flat on the ground before the old man in his mouth called robes. Then, lifting their wings, they soared gracefully into the air. 
Um, of course, they have the exchange with everybody trying to figure out, trying to Fizzman trying to figure out. He knows perfectly well who all these people are. Of course, you know, those dragons wouldn't have just bowed to him and flew off if he was just some crazy old magician. They know exactly who he is. So it was, well, that gold dragon probably doesn't because he's just too old. But uh, an old magician doesn't just hang out with an ancient gold dragon and tell him what to do. Um, so they have the comedy team moment quote no damn it tannis yelled tannis yanked off his helm i'm tannis half elven remember fizzband beam tannis half elven so pleased to see you again sir grabbing tannis's hand he shook it heartily confound it tannis snapped in exasperation snapping his hand to the old man's grip but you were riding dragons those were good dragons tannis shouted they've come back no one told me the, dra- the old man gasped indignantly so um I think that Fizzband knew that had they continued to find the dragon, something bad would have happened. Like he's he's intervening to, so now they have to go by foot to try to get to Naraka through the mountains. Um, and uh, he has basically just said he's going to travel with them. Um, there was a moment uh, where he just basically tells Tannis, I'm going with you and there's nothing you can do about it. And then he, that befuddled, thing about him falls away and tennis is like you know they do that a lot where they where fizzman will suddenly just look at you and you, and you kind of know what he is there's he's just too powerful there's, there's nothing you can do to make him do anything so um we're in very short way going to get into who he actually is and i'll actually it's the last part and we're getting to that getting to it very to the end um but the gold dragon can't go with him of course so uh, Fizzband has him shrink down to this little gold statue. <laughs> Quote, here, F- here, Fizzband said to Taz as they ran, hold out your hand. Taz did as instructed. Then the kinder caught his breath in awe. He would have come to a dead stop to examine it, except Tannis caught him by the arm and dragged him forward. In the palm of Tannis's, uh, Taz's hand gleamed a tiny golden figure of a dragon carved in exquisite detail. Taz imagined he could see even the scars on the wings. Two small red jewels glittered in the eyes. Then as Taz watched, the jewels winked out his golden eyelids closed off. Closed over them. Oh, Fizzban, it's beautiful. Can I truly keep it? Taz yelled over his shoulder to the old man who was puffing along behind. Sure, my boy, Fizzban beamed, at least until this adventure's ended. Or it ends us, Tennis muttered, climbing over the rapidly over the rocks. The, dra- the draconians were drawing near and near. Okay, we come to a point that I just. For the for the of course the purpose of the story, they have to go through that. They can't just come to this last part. These draconians are chasing them. They're, they chase through a mountain pass. They come to this rickety bridge. It falls down. Fizzban, um, you know, I'll, I'll do a couple quotes, but I'm just trying to get through this because the last part I wanted to discuss, and it's you know one of the best best written parts of the book. So, quote. Near sundown, the companions came to a halt. They stood on a small rocky ledge about three-quarters of the way up the side of the mountain. Before them was a deep, narrow gorge. Far below, they could see a river winding its way through the bottom of the gorge like a glistening snake. It must be a 400-foot drop, Tannis calculated. The trail they stood on hugged the side of the mountain with a sheer cliff on one side and nothing but air on the other. There was only one way across the gorge. The bridge across the narrow gorge was of a unique construction. Huge valenwood limbs were driven into the sides of the mountain on either side of the gorge. These limbs formed an X-shape that supported the wooden plank wooden plank platform long ago the structure must have been an architectural marvel but now the wooden planks were rotted and splitting if there had been a railing it had long since fallen into the chasm below even as they watched the timbers creaked and shuddered in the chill wind of the evening um they start to cross it um and tannis is of course coming when it you know him being the point of view character for the entire uh this entire 
part of the book. Quote, Tannis was nearly halfway across when part of the platform gave way, the rotten wood splintering beneath his feet. Acting instinctively in a paroxysm of terror, he clutched desperately the planking and caught hold of the edge, but the rotten wood crumbled in his grasp. His fingers slipped and a hand closed over his wrist. Barum Tannis gasped. Hold on, he forced himself to hang limply, knowing that any moment on his part would only make movement on his part would only make Baron's hand hold on him harder to maintain. Baron pulls him up. Um, the draconians are chasing him, and then the other part of the bridge falls out where they're trying to get uh, across, uh, like the center of it falls. So then uh, Fezban leaps into the action. Quote, here in the old main sh- chant, Tannis felt his heart sink. Then he reminded himself bitterly that they couldn't really be in a worse position. Barum next to him was watching the draconians with stoic composure that Tannis found startling to remember that Baron didn't fear death. He would always return to life. Tannis fired again, and another draconian howled in pain. He's using his bow, of course. So intent was he on his targets that he forgot Fizban until he heard Barum gasp in astonishment. Glancing up, Tannis saw Barum staring into the sky. Staring into the sky. Following Barum's gaze, the elf was so astonished he nearly dropped his bow. Descending from the clouds, glittering brightly in the dying rays of the sun, was a go- long golden bridge span. Guided by motions of the old man's hand, the golden span dropped down out of the heavens to close the gap in the bridge. Um, you know, it's just a. It, there is. I don't know if this is true or not, but I they say that this whole book series was based on an actual Dungeons and Dragons. Session like they were playing this and this all the things that happened actually happened in that session and they stuck to them. I can't see that being true because there's so many random things that happen in the Dungeons and Dragons module and adventure. So, but I think that some things do happen. This strikes me as something that might have happened. Like they use the wizard to create this golden. There actually is a spell I think I remember in one of the magic books where it says there's a golden bridge you can use to close this. I mean it's it's weird, you know, but. Uh, it's uh, something that happened in the book. Quote, And at that moment, the other half of the wooden bridge, the half still standing, the half that led to safety on the other side of the canyon, creeped, crum- creaked, crumbled, and fell into the canyon. In the name of the gods, Caraman gulped in fear, catching hold of Tannis and dragging him back just as the half-elf had been about to set foot on the wooden planking. Trapped, Tannis said hoarsely, watching the logs tumble end over end to the ravine, his soul seeming to plummet with them. On the other side, he could hear Tika scream, her cries bl- blending with the ad- exultant shouts of the draconians. There was a rending, snapping sound. The tra- draconians' cries of exultation changed at once to horror and fear. Look, Tannis cried in wild excitement. Look. Tannis glanced back in time to see the other part of the wooden bridge tumble into the ravine, carrying with it most of the draconians. He felt the golden span shudder. We'll fall too, Caraman swore. There's nothing to support. And it didn't need support. It's just magic force. Um, in the center of the canyon, suspended in midair, hung the magical golden span, glittering in the light of the setting sun as a wooden bridge on either side of it plunged into the ravine. Upon the span stood four figures, staring out at the ruins beneath them and across the great gaps between them and the side of the gorge. For long moments, there was complete, absolute, deathly silence. Then Fizban turned triumphantly to Tannis. Wonderful spell, said the major with, with, with pride. Got a rope. So they continue on. Um, then we get to the, we're coming to the last part. And I wanted to deal with this a lot because there is a little foreshadowing here. Um, they're now going through the mountains and uh, we have an exchange between uh, Tannis and Flint. I wonder about a lot of things. Tannis said quietly, like, how are you feeling? The dwarf blinked completely taken aback by the unexpected question. Finally snapped his face flushing. It's just sometimes I've seen you rub your left arm, Tennis continued. Rheumatism, the dwarf growled. You know it has always bo- always bothers me in the spring. And sleeping on the ground does help. I thought you'd said we should be moving along. The dwarf busied himself with packing. Um, 
then they have discussion of this place called God's Home. That's where they're going. It's uh, apparently it was a, a village, but it's also a place. Um, uh, and because Tannis has asked Tassahoff for a map, they don't know where the hell they're going. So Tassahoff, of course, has one. Quote, Map, right. You see, yes, you see, once when I was just a little kinder, my parents and I traveled through the Calcas Mountains. That's where we are now on our way to Calaman. Usually, you know, we took the northern longer route. There was a fair of a year at Tam and Bust. I can't even pronounce that, where they sold the most marvelous things, and my father never missed it. But one year, I think it was a year after he'd been arrested and put in the stocks over a misunderstanding with a jeweler, <laughs> we decided to go through the mountains. My mother had always wanted to see God's home. So we, yeah, and then he produces the map. Um, then we have a moment. Um, this is it's, it's going to get really sad. Um, Tannis is trying to get everybody going, and he's uh, asked Flint if he, he's like, "Are you coming?" And Flint says, "Quote: Yes." The dwarf answered, sitting down suddenly on a rock. "Give me a moment. I brought. I've dropped my pack. You go on ahead." Occupied and studying the kinder's map as he walked, Tannis did not see Flint collapse. He did not hear the odd note in the dwarf's voice or see the spasm of pain that briefly contracted the dwarf's face. Well, hurry up, Tannis said absently. We don't want to leave you behind. Aye, lad, Flint said softly, sitting on the rock, waiting for the pain to subside as it always did. Flint watched his friend walk down the trail, still moving somewhat clumsily in the dragon armor. We, want, we don't want to leave you behind. Aye, lad, Flint repeated himself, brushing his gnarled hand quickly across his eyes. The dwarf stood up and followed his friends. Um, there's more here. I, I highlight all this stuff, and um, it's just where they're getting to this place, God's home. Um, it's not important at this point because um, you know, it's just a description of what you know. There's a description of Tika trying to distract Carolyn, who's in a gloom. You know, all kinds of stuff. Tannis, Tassel, you know, the whole thing. Um. And they're kind of lost. But then Fizban kind of predicted what he finds, you know, where they're going to this place called God's home. Quote, suddenly Fizban's face brightened. This is it, cried the old mage high. We, we found it, God's home. The way in through this passageway. There's no other way, Caravan asked, staring at the narrow opening gloomily. It's like an opening in the rock, like, like a cave entrance. Um, and uh, the other going through, Caravan almost couldn't fit because he's too big. Um then they, uh, Tasselhoff calls back to Tannis. Quote, I heard something, Tannis, he kept saying, Flint shouting up ahead. And wait until you see this place, Tannis, you won't believe it. Uh, not exactly the place I'd choose to live if I were a god, Tasselhoff remarked in a subdued voice. Tannis was forced to agree. They stood at the center of a circular depression in the center of a mountain. The first thing that struck Tannis when he looked upon God's home was the overwhelming des desolation and emptiness of the place. All along the path into the mountains, the companions had seen signs of new life. Trees budding, grass greening, wildflowers pushing their way through the mud and remnants of snow. But here there was nothing. The bottom of the bowl was perfectly smooth and flat, totally barren, gray and lifeless. The towering peaks of the mountains surrounding the bowl soared above them. The jagged rock of the peaks seemed to loom inward, giving the observer the impression of being pressed down into the climbing, crumbling rock beneath his feet. The sky above them was azure, clear and cold, devoid of sun or bird or cloud that had been raining when they had entered the tunnel. It was like an eye staring down from gray, unblinking rims. Shivering, Tennis quickly withdrew his gaze from the sky to look once more within the bowl. Below that staring eye, within the center of the bowl itself, stood a huge, tall, 
a circle of huge, tall, shapeless boulders. It was it was a perfect circle made up of imperfect rocks. They marched so they matched so nearly and stood clo- so close together that when Tannis tried to look out between them, he could not make out from from where he was standing what that strange what the strange stones guarded so solemnly. That's a very clumsy sentence. Maybe it's just me. These boulders were all that was visible in the rock strewn and silent and silent place. It makes me feel so terribly sad, Tika whispered. It's not I'm not frightened. It doesn't seem evil. It's just so sorrowful. If the odds do come here, it must be to weep over the troubles of the world. Fizban turned to regard Tika with a penetrating look and seemed about to speak. Before he could comment, Tess off shouted. Um Barum has run off at this point, and um uh Flint had chased after him. That's a I I'm sorry that's a point I, I thought. And Tannis noticed something about him like he's like he's got this burst of energy and, and he wasn't talking earlier and that was if Tannis hadn't been wrapped up in everything it would have been a bad sign you know because Flynn is always complaining about something or he's silent he's just walking um but uh Tasshoff, uh leads us into this quote it's Barum screamed Taz the two were plainly visible to his keen kinder eyes and he's doing something Flint hurry Tannis bitterly cursing himself for letting this happen for not keeping a closer watch on Barum for not forcing the men to reveal those secrets he was so obviously holding back Tannis ran, ran across the stony ground with this with a speed born of fear he could hear the others calling to him but he paid no attention his eyes were on the two in front of him and now he could see them clearly even as he watched he saw the dwarf fall to the ground Barum stood over him Flint Tannis screamed his heart was pounding so that blood dimmed his vision. His lungs ached. There didn't seem, seem enough air to breathe. Still, he ran faster, and now he could see Barum turn to look at him. He seemed to be trying to say something. Tannis could see the man's lips moving, but the half-elf couldn't hear through the surge of blood beating in his ears. At Barum's fl- feet lay Flint. The dwarf's eyes were closed. His head lolled over to one side. His face was ashen gray. Then we have a point where something really kind of crazy happens even you know for a moment like this tannis takes out a sword and stabs bear him and kills him um quote his sword was in his hand he had no idea how he felt the cold steel of the hilt Barum's eyes swam with a blood red sea within a blood red sea the man's eyes filled not with terror but with deep sorrow then tannis saw the eyes widen with pain it was only then that he knew he had plunged the sword into Barum's unresisting body plunged it so deeply that he felt it cleave through flesh and blood and bone and scrape Flesh and bone, not blood, of course, and scraped the rock upon which the Everman was leaning. Warm blood washed over Tannis's hands. A horrible scream burst in his head. Then a heavy weight fell on him, nearly knocking him down. We come at this point. Yeah, of course, Barum's not going to be dead. I mean, he's he's the Everman. He's going to get back up. And they're trying to restrain Tannis. And we get a moment. Tannis has done this because of his love for Flint. I wish I could express and, and we could do a, we will do a, a, a one small show, like maybe an addendum to uh, about the book Kindred Spirits, where Flint comes to Quaonessi for the first time and sees Tannis as a, as a young boy and makes him toys. Then he, he actually forges him a sword and it's Tannis's first sword. And Flint was more a ornamental guy and jewel smith, but he was a skilled sword maker, too. And he really put a lot of love into it and he loved Tannis like because he's always been that fatherly thing you know what I mean and he he saw this boy that needed help and he liked him from the beginning you know and his heart went out to him so they they had that that friendship has been it's the oldest friendship in the entire you know book and series and he thinks that Barum killed him that's why he killed Barum so um 
then uh, Fizz, he's freaking out and nobody can calm him down. But then Fizzband comes, quote, his touch was like cool water to a fevered man. Tannis felt reason return. The bloody haze cleared from his vision. He dropped the bloodstained sword from his red hands and collapsed, sobbing at Fizzband's feet. The old man leaned down and gently patted him. Be strong, Tannis, he said softly, for he must say goodbye to one of his long journey before him. Tannis, remember, Flint, he gasped. Fizzband nodded sadly, glancing at Barum's body. Come along. There's nothing more we can do here. Swallowing his tears, Tannis staggered to his feet. Shoving aside the mage, he stumbled over to where Flint lay on the rocky ground, his head resting on Tasselhoff's lap. Isn't that the saddest image? The dwarf smiled as he saw the half-elf approach. Tannis dropped down on his knees beside his oldest friend. Taking Flint's gnarled hand in his, the half-elf held it fast. I almost lost him, Tannis, Flint said. With his other hand, he tapped his chest. Baron was just about to slip out through that other hole in the rocks over there when this old mind of, when this old heart of mine finally burst. He heard me cry out, I guess, because the next thing I knew, he had me in his arms and was laying, laying me down the rocks. Baron wasn't hurting him. He was He's actually a good person. He just heard him cry out and was helping him. Then he didn't harm you, Tannis could barely speak. Flint managed to snort. Harm me? He couldn't harm a mouse, Tannis. He's as gentle as Tika. The dwarf smiled up at the girl who also knelt beside him. You take take care of that big oaf, Caraman, you hear? He said to her. See, he comes in out of the rain. I mean, this is sad. I will, Flint, Tika wept. At least you won't be trying to drown me anymore, the dwarf grumbled, his eyes resting fondly on Caraman. If you see that brother of yours, give him a kick in the robes for me. (laughs) Caraman could not speak. He only shook his head. I'll go look after Baron, the big man mumbled. Taking hold of Tika, he gently helped her stand and led her away. No, Flint, you can't go off adventuring without me, Taz wailed. You'll get into no end of trouble. You know you will. I gotta be honest, I'm having a hard time keeping it together, kinda. Because, you know, that's the worst part is Tasselhoff having to deal with this. And of course, Flint being Flint answers it in a Flint kind of way. It'll be the first moment of peace I've had since we met, the dwarf said gruffly. I want you to have my helm, the one with the griffin's mane. He glanced at Tara, he glared at Taz sternly, then turned his gaze back to the sobbing kinder. Sighing, he patted Taz's hand. There, there, lad, don't take on so. I've had a happy life, best with faithful friends. I've seen evil things, but I've seen a lot of good things, too. <clears throat> now hope has come into the world. I hate to leave you, his rapidly dimming vision focused on Tannis, just when you need me. But I've taught you all I know, lad. Everything will be fine. I know. Fine. His voice sank. He closed his eyes, breathing heavily. Tannis held... Tightly to his hand, Tasselhoff buried his face in Flint's shoulder. Then Fizban appeared, standing at Flint's feet. The dwarf opened his eyes. I know you now, he said softly, his eyes bright as he looked at Fizban. You'll come with me, won't you? At least at the beginning of the journey, so I won't be alone? I've walked with friends so long, I feel kind of funny going off like this by myself. I'll come with you, Fizban promised gently. Close your eyes and rest now, Flint. The troubles of this world are yours no longer. You have earned the right to sleep. Sleep, the dwarf said, smiling. Yes, that's what I need. Wake me when you're ready. Wake me when it's time to leave. Flint's eyes closed. He drew in a smooth, easy breath and let it out. Tennis pressed the dwarf's hand to his lips. Farewell, old friend, the half-elf whispered, and he placed his hand placed the hand on the dwarf's still chest. No, Flint, no, screaming, Tasselhoff, screaming wildly, Tasselhoff flung himself across the dwarf's body. Gently, Tannis lifted the sobbing kinder in his arms. Taz kicked and fought, but Tannis held him firmly like a child. And finally, Taz subsided, exhausted, clinging, clinging to Tannis. Clinging to Tannis, he wept bitterly. Then Fizzman comes up and picks up Ta- Flint's body. And he's. Um, and Tannis wants to give him a proper burial. You know, he, he wants to build a cairn for him because that's what you do for a dwarf there. You build a cairn. And. 
But Fizzman tells him, no, I told him he wouldn't travel alone. So I'm, you know, I'm going with him. And then he starts to walk away and Tannis starts to run after him. Quote, it, it had seemed an easy thing to Tannis to catch up with an old man bearing such a burden. But Fizzman moved incredibly fast, almost as if he and the dwarf were as light as the air. Suddenly aware of the weight on his own body, Tannis felt as if he was trying to catch a whiff of smoke soaring heavenward. Still, he stumbled after them, reaching them just as the old man entered the ring of boulders, carrying the dwarf's body in his arms. Tannis squeezed through the circle of rocks without thinking, knowing only that he must stop this crazed old mage and recover his friend's body. Then he stopped within the circle. Before him, he spread what he first took to be a pool of water to show that nothing marred the smooth surface. Then he saw that it wasn't water. It was a pool of glassy black rock. The deep black surface was polished to a gleaming brilliance. It stretched before Tannis Tannis with the darkness of night, and indeed, looking down into its black depths, Tannis Tannis was startled to see stars. So clear were they that he looked up, half expecting to see night had fallen. Then he knew it was only mid-afternoon. The sky above him was azure, cold. That's I mean, I, I didn't know what that was for a long time it's blue cold and clear no stars no sun shaking shaken and weak tennis dropped to his knees beside the pool and stared once more into its polished surface he saw the stars he saw the moons he saw three moons and his soul trembled for the black moon visible only to the those powerful mages of the red black robes was now visible to him like a circle cut out of blackness he can need to see the gaping holes where the constellations of the queen of darkness and valiant warrior that once wheeled in the sky and they're gone. They've disappeared. But then um, Tasselhoff, you know, Tasselhoff wants to go with Flint. And he's, um, you know, of course he does. And Taz, I mean, Tannis says, sometimes that can be confusing. Quote, no, Taz. The half-elf said gently, you can't go on this adventure with him. Not yet. You must stay with me a while. I need you now. Tassahoff fell back, unusually obedient, and as he did so, he pointed. Look, Tannis, he whispered, his voice quivering. The constellation has come back. As Tannis stared into the surface of the black pool, he saw the stars of the constellation of the valiant warrior return. They flickered, then burst into light, filling the dark pool with their blue-white radiance. Swiftly, Tannis looked upward, but the sky above was dark and still and empty. 